It's game day at Raising Cane's. If you want to order like a saint, it's the action off the field you need to focus on. The only play you're running is chicken. So what combo are you picking? Make it a perfect season. We've got tailgates of hand-battered, cooked-to-order chicken fingers and cane sauce and jugs of freshly made tea and lemonade, all available to order online or on our app. This season is about to be unbeatable. Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers. One love. (laughs) Official chicken finger of the Saints. WD-40 into the chat room. Because, you know, you always want to go into a show nice and smooth, and that's what Bill WD-40 does. He lubes it up for us tonight. All right, moving on. Nikki in Seattle, thank you for joining us. Very much appreciate it. And who else do we have here? Let's see. Uh, Jenny Girl, nice to have you back. It's been a while. How's the oil patch? Let us know. A.A. Ron Baca, thank you for coming on in. As we got 30 seconds to go, the Super Chat is a wonderful way to support what we do on this show on a nightly basis. Also, head to our website, spacedoutradio.com. We do not have ugly swag, people. No, we do not. You'll actually want to wear our stuff. Near, 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 Neil, holy cow, that was hard. Neil Warden, welcome to the show. Digger Dog, thank you for coming on in. And... Don't forget, May 10th through 12th, 2024 at Reno, Nevada, the third annual Spaced Out Radio Fan Party. Horns up. Let's rock. mountains of central british columbia to you listening around the world this my friends is spaced out radio i am your host dave scott sitting in the captain's chair of sor headquarters we welcome you to tonight's show on our terrestrial affiliates around north america digitally on odyssey radio talk stream live at kpnl all of our archives are free Join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do me the favor, hit that subscribe button. You can follow us on Twitter at spaced out radio, Instagram at spaced out radio show, and join us on the Patreon in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Our website, spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the newswire, check out our swag as well. Tonight's show is brought to you by Chive Charities. Help make the world 10% happier by visiting Chive Charities today. You can find them on our website. A great show coming at you tonight as we head to the east coast of Canada, Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, where Chris Stiles will join us talking about Shag Harbor, the UFO incident in 67, as well as many other UFO sites around the country. Then in our number three, Steve Stockton. Brings us a spooky story from Alaska and Among the Missing. Then little Timmy Senor will be here for the UFO report. Let's get to it. Chris Stiles is an active UFO researcher who investigates select classic and current UFO incidents that have occurred in Atlantic Canada. He holds to a blended view of the UFO phenomena that allows room for both the ETH and a significant psychological component. He is the best known for his work on the 1967 case, the Shag Harbor Incident, and is presented at several MUFON symposiums in both Canada and the U.S. Chris served as a paid technical advisor with several Canadian UFO feature documentaries, such as Ocean Entertainment's The Shag Harbor Incident 
and Northern Lights. He has appeared in several U.S. UFO specials, such as Canada's Roswell, UFOs 2, Have We Been Visited? In 2019, he appeared in an episode of Ocean Mysteries with Celine and Fabienne Cousteau. He is the author of a couple of books, Shag Harbor Incident, Dark Object, Del Bantam with Don Ledger, and Impact to Contact, Arcadia House with Graham Sims. This is going to be an exciting, exciting night. I am so pumped up for the first time to have Chris Stiles on Spaced Out Radio. Chris, thank you so much for joining us, my fellow Canadian friend. Well, thank you for your interest in having me, Dave. Uh, It's going to be good. (laughs) Did you ever think that your life would be surrounded by UFO events? When you were a kid growing up, maybe playing in the playground, talking with your buddies, did you really think that UFOs were going to be your life? Yeah, I did. Really? Um, but it didn't quite work out that way, Dave. That was what I thought. And I'll, I'll tell you, I can remember being a boy in school, like seven or eight, and, um, you know, hearing in the news, uh, Socorro, New Mexico, the Loni Zamora case, and thinking, wow, a policeman, you know? And that grabbing me. And this is before the Shag Harbor incident. And, you know, one of the things that made me think what I wanted to was I can remember being home, couldn't tell you how old I was, but again, single digits, right? And I had the chicken pox. I'm laying there in front of the television. We had one station in those days in Halifax. I'm covered in calamine lotion, right? And on the noon movie that came on, it was the uh, feature Unidentified Flying Objects, the docudrama, right, that was produced in the 50s. And it was just fascinating, and that gripped me, and I could think about nothing else for the next few years. And then, of course, at the young age of 12, I happened, while living in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, the same night as the Shag Harbor incident, to uh, look out my window, see uh, an orange orb that had a 60-foot axis moving over the harbor near the Dartmouth Cove area. I ran out of the house. It was late at night. I wasn't supposed to went to the waterfront, came far too close to this thing, and uh, thought I was going to die. And I was t- so scared I couldn't run. Eventually, I did. I came home the next day, and my grandfather called me from Shag Harbor and said, you're not going to believe this, but something came from space. That stuff you think about, and it's gone into the harbor, and the RCMP and divers are looking for it, et cetera. So, you know, it, it, was, it was there. And it would, it surrounded me, and I thought, well, you know, it could happen anywhere. And if it happened here, why not? So, you know, it grabbed me like that. You know, I was in it. But strangely enough, I did not become involved until April of 1992. What changed? What changed was I saw a rebroadcast, basically a rerun of the Unsolved Mysteries episode that had the segment about the Roswell incident. And, uh, you know, this is the one that uh, featured Stanton Freeman and others. You know, first, it was my first exposure to the story. I watched it with a close friend, and when it was over, um, unlike myself, she was an academic and had some background and looked at me and said, do you really think such a thing could happen? I mean, really? And I said, uh, I know it can't because it's happened here. And I told her of what I'd seen in my grandfather's experience. He was one of the many non-reporting witnesses at the time 
back on October the 4th, 67, in Shag Harbor. And when it was done, she said, you should call uh, that guy that was on the TV in the special, that guy being Stanton Friedman. And I said, Dave, yeah, I'll do that. Now, this girl knew me well, and she said, no, you won't. I know you. And I said, no, I will. I want to, you know. And she grabbed the old landline. Remember, this is in the 90s. Dropped it on my lap. It was rather heavy and said, call now. So I did what you did in those days, called the long-distance operator. I was surprised they had a listed number for Stanton. I phoned it. And um, a human answering service picked up and said, no, that he was out of town. If it was an emergency, we could have the number. And, and the girl was like, you get that number. So I got the number. I didn't know where I was calling. Turned out it was Austin, Texas. Stanton was about to leave to go to a MUFON symposium. He took my call and talked to me for about 20 minutes. And when I was done recounting my story, now at this point, Dave, I didn't remember a date. I just, you know, had the outline of the story, you know, that they'd seen a, a UFO hovering in, with strange lighting display in the sky um, this was October the 4th, but 11.20 at night. After hovering there for several minutes, it tilted to a 45-degree angle, descended rapidly to the water's surface, and produced a bright flash and the sound of an explosion. Uh, the people who had seen it from the distance, and one of the unique things about the Shag Harbor incident is nobody reported a UFO. Seven people immediately called the RCMP detachment in nearby Barrington Passage and said, we think a plane's gone down, or simply that lights have gone into the water. Three RCMP officers responded. One of them was out on highway patrol, and he actually saw it in the air and on the water. It was a very clear night. The moon had already set. You could see six magnitude stars without binoculars. Now, here's the cool part is when they get by what's called the moss plant by the shoreline that afforded the view in the parking lot, cars are showing up from all over. Eventually, you have dozens of people there, three RCMP officers. The UFO still on the water moving around. Now, in the air, it appeared like four flashing lights, okay? But by the time they see it on the water, it's just a pale dome of yellow light. They try to reach it with two boats. And before they could get to it, it either submerged or disappeared. Um, they searched until 3 a.m. It happened 11.20 at night on a Wednesday night, October the 4th. And, uh, you know, the reports went to Ottawa, went to the Air Desk, Canada's equivalent of Blue Book at the time with the Royal Canadian Air Force. And they uh, got clearance for a maritime command to conduct an underwater search. Um that went on until Sunday night at 9 p.m., uh, no results from that Wednesday night. And then uh, they released a, pre a press release saying, you know, don't know what it was, went in the water, didn't find anything, no missing or late aircraft. Let me skip back to Stanton. When he took my call, I had that story to relate to him, which I did. And um, he came back with some very simple practical advice he said to me he said you know chris he said i think you're going to have a much easier time than i did with roswell and i said why is that he said fishermen don't move little simple things like that he told me what to do and um next thing you know i was out of the block one thing led to another 
Um, he sent me an application to the Fund for UFO Research. Uh, they sent a modest grant to put me in Ottawa for two weeks. I learned about access to information, learned better ways of getting documents, and one thing led to another. And next thing you know, this case got resurrected. And by the way, when I first called Stanton, he didn't remember the case. And, every, and others I'd called at the time um, had completely forgotten it. The first... Uh, UFO researcher I spoke to that had a memory of it was Richard, the late Richard Hall. But, um, and that was how it started, you know. And one thing led to another. And uh, the thing was, I was surprised. You know, the biggest shock to me as I was looking for these documents was to find that almost all of them were unrestricted from the day till now. You know, it wasn't like they had to be downgraded or reviewed. Nobody just ever asked for them. You know, that's, that's in a way the biggest mystery of all to me, right? But, um, yeah, so. 1967 was such an interesting year because it started off with the the high strangeness of the Falcon Lake incident. Yes. And then, and then uh, you know, the Honorable Paul Hellyer opens up a UFO landing pad in, oh, yeah. in Alberta uh, for Canada Day to show that anybody, including aliens, were welcome in Canada on Canada's 100th anniversary. Well, and then a few months later, after Hellier is uh, ousted uh, and, his, and his government was ousted from power, three weeks after that election, Shag Harbor happens. What the hell was wrong with 1967, my man? It's stranger than that, Dave. That was the last time that uh, the Maple Leafs won a Stanley Cup. Thank Christ. Same year. <laughs> but here, here's what I'm getting at. Let, no, let, I, let me stop being silly here. Uh, 1967, Paul Hellyer, let's, put some, let's get the record straight on this. This was the only time in history, the, those few years in 67, we had two defense ministers at once. People tend to forget this. We did have Paul Hellyer. We also had an associate defense minister at the same time, Leo Kadu. And all the documents to do with Chag Harbor that were signed or passed on, and any UFO case I looked at around those years was always handled by Leo Kadu. Usually Hellyer, in fact, I think the week of Chag Harbor, he was in Britain with his wife, and she was breaking a bottle of champagne on one of our new over on class submarines, I believe the Onondaga at the time. And, you know, like the landing pad, he did a lot of ribbon cuttings. He was the man, of course, synonymous and had been handed the job of unification. You know, we know what that did. I, I mean, in Halifax, I don't think he would have been safe on the streets in those days, you know, with the huge naval force. We still had a 60-ship Navy then. And nobody there wanted to wear a green uniform, I can tell you, in the Navy with the tradition, you know. I hear you. Um, he'd been tarred with that brush. I think he was a bit of a victim and somebody that was chosen to carry out something they wanted to do. Because, you know, the Navy had planned for some time to do away with the Bonnie, with the carrier. And, you know, they had developed the uh, bear trap, a way of winching, seeking helicopters down to the deck. And the idea was it was going to be a great saving to phase, uh, you know, get us away from carriers. And, you know, how, how much I'm right about that and many others, I've read the analysis of them. But 
it is a fact that we had two defense ministers at once, and it was Leo Cadieux who often uh, gave clearance when necessary or was included in briefings on these cases. It definitely was with Shag Harbor. And I I've, I have a number of documents I found that include, and you mentioned, of course, Falcon Lake and Shag Harbor and other cases in that period. Uh, one of the things that I wasn't expecting, you know, it was great that I was getting these documents. And there were two types of documents I was getting from the beginning. Uh, one was military telexes that had gone between the bases. Telex before the Internet was primarily how the military sent orders and information and, you know, intel. Um, and in that, one of the things that was cool, I found, is that before long, I quickly realized that what was mo most telling was not often the body of text, but margin notes made by the staffers. And copies of that had been preserved with, well, it's now Library and Archives Canada, the then National Archives. And when you read those margin notes, it would be very telling, right? For example, it would say, they'd start writing something like, called so-and-so at the NRC, it was not a meteor, it was not, and suddenly they'd scratch the whole thing out. And one of the most telling was one that I have that, uh, like I said, the air desk the part of the Royal Canadian Air Force that handled UFO investigations at the time. It was officially their duty. And to put it in perspective, 1967, they handled 256 police reports and RCMP reports on UFOs, which resulted in nine on-site investigations, Falcon Lake and Shake Harbor being two of them, right? These are cases where, you know, they would send out field units. You know, they, they would call on whatever was necessary. And they were allowed to do that. They would often have to get clearance for the money. When the Shag Harbor story back in the 60s became a headline story in the Halifax Chronicle Herald, and that in itself was significant because the Herald was considered, many still claim it's Canada's most conservative broadsheet. Not every day you see a UFO headline, but it said could be something concrete in Shag Harbor UFO RCAF. And they did an interview on the front page with squadron leader William Bain, one of two majors that was at the air desk. And he said quite clearly, we believe this could very well be the real deal. And what's certainly clear when you look at these telexes, and more importantly, when you look at some of the memos that circulated through the Defense Department from Shag Harbor and other cases, it's quite clear that they were considering the possibility, particularly as the intel grew that there's no missing or late aircraft and data came in from NORAD, etc., that this was the real deal. And um, the most telling, I think, is this, Dave, and I'll, I'll take a break and you can steer me where you went from there. There's a memo that was released to me. I actually got this one not through Records Group 77 or through... Um, you know, the, the collection they put together at National Archives back then or through the interlibrary loaner system, all things I did. But I'd send in requests to uh, the Directorate of History at D&D headquarters, and they sent me a memo that had gone around and everybody signed off on it, including this associate defense minister in one version of it, Leo Cadu. But here's the cool part. There's a little... There's four short paragraphs in it. Here's the third one, and this tells how much they bought into it. This is 36 hours after the crash, okay? And it says, 
A preliminary investigation has been conducted by the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax, and it has been determined that no known aircraft, flare, float, or in fact any known object is responsible for this. Really? Pretty short list of what that leaves. Yeah, no kidding. No. Yeah. No so, kidding. And, and I was getting this stuff very early on into it. I remember when I first showed Stan Freeman, he goes, holy crap, he goes, Chris, you got the mother load. Well, maybe, but it, it, it did as much as like the fact that the case was solid. And when you were talking about really strange cases, and when you mentioned, for example, Falcon Lake, I, I realized early on you're looking for two things as a researcher, as an investigator. You want high strangeness, but you want high credibility. Well, Shag was, had the credibility. We had double-digit witnesses. We had, uh, you know, the military involvement. But these documents I was getting, particularly these memos that circulated, they gave us insight into what the government thought at the time, and they're like, yep, this is it. You know, that's what they thought. Now, they never found anything, got away. Interestingly, there was no cover story. The Chronicle Herald and some of the other players in this tried to, uh, you know, cool it down and debunk it. They were kind of embarrassed. Um there's a cute little side story if you want to hear it about that about how sure. bad that was. We got you want we, this? We, Here's we, some we color got three for minutes. You. We got three minutes. Okay, I can do this in three minutes. At the Chronicle Herald, the guy who wrote that cover story, you know, in the headline story, right? He was a junior reporter that started there. Ray McLeod had a short career as a reporter, and when he first got this, he would show it to the guys above him, and it went right up through the chain of command. And they go, oh, Jesus, Ray, I don't know. We don't do UFO stories. Better talk to Wilkie Taylor. Talk to this guy. And eventually he got to the managing night editor, Harold Shea. And he showed it to him, and Harold looked at it, and he figured, well, here's where it dies on the vine, right? Harold read it, and he goes, you check. He goes, this guy's real. You cocked Ottawa, yeah? He goes, that's our headline story on Saturday. And he was, what? Why? He said, because I've seen them myself. He said, wife and I were going to a wedding, coming home late at night, and a big saucer landed on the... Hi there, I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer and host of the Health Discovered Podcast, where we bring you fascinating stories and unique perspectives, like our recent episode on how heart failure can particularly affect women in Black and Hispanic communities. We've documented it time and time again. She was young, she was Black, she was a woman. No one expected her to look like the face of heart failure. When you don't look like what someone expects, that's going to lead to delays in diagnosis. We all have to take this constellation of symptoms, treat it the same each and every time. Whether it's a young person, a black person, a woman, if someone presents to me with my heart racing and feeling winded, I need to get an echocardiogram 100% of the time, regardless. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. With Sotic 2 for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, you could show off your skin again. And you know what that means. Beach day. As a TIC2 inhibitor, Sotic 2 is the only once daily pill of its kind for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Ask your dermatologist about Sotic 2 today and learn more at SoClearlyYou.com. That's SoClearlyYou.com. 
Sotic2, Decravacitinib, is a prescription treatment for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis who may benefit from systemic therapy or phototherapy. Don't take if you're allergic to Sotic2. Serious reactions can occur. Before treatment, get checked for infections, including tuberculosis. Sotic2 can lower your ability to fight infections. Don't start if you have one. Serious infections, cancers including lymphoma, muscle problems, and changes in certain labs have occurred. Tell your doctor if you have a history of these events, or if you have an infection or symptoms like fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, or if you have history of hepatitis B or C, liver or kidney problems, high triglycerides, or had a vaccine or plan to. So Tick 2 inhibits Tick 2, which is part of the Jack family. People 50 and older with heart disease risk factors who use a Jack inhibitor are at increased risk for certain side effects, sometimes fatal. It's unknown if So Tick 2 has the same risks as Jack inhibitors. Call 1 888 S O T Y K T U to learn more. Beach, or we're coming back on Old Highway 3. That's the headline. So he put it in. Ray felt good about that. Thought he was going to have a great journalistic career. Monday morning, when he comes into work, he puts a coffee on the secretary's desk, and she goes, "You got to go in and see Mr. Dennis. He's the owner editor, right?" He walks in. He points to sit down. The phone's ringing. He's on the phone. Everybody's lined up, including the managing night editor, Mr. Dennis. You know, hangs up the phone, and the phone rings right away, and he kicks it across from. He says, "You hear that? You know what that is? We're scaring people." We're not in the business to scare people. He said, Harold, what the hell happened to you? You're a good man. He goes, you're on the day shift. He look at the reporter. He goes, Ray, he goes, from now on, you're doing weddings, bar mitzvahs, and cement pourings. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, what a slap in a journalist's face. Yeah. What a and slap. he convinced them that there was no squadron leader, Bain, and it was only three or four years ago I ran into him in a Sobe store buying groceries, and we started chatting, and he still thought that Bain wasn't real. And I said, Ray, it's a good thing you became a, a, a beloved high school teacher because, you know, as a journalist, if you let him talk, you know, he'd done good work on this, right? I knew Bain was real. I interviewed him three hours face-to-face in Ottawa when I, that grant I mentioned picked him up at his chiropractor's appointment, you know? Yeah. Anyway, that's how they keep it quiet. There are so many questions I have, not only about this case, but the aftermath regarding this. Because at the time with, you know, Wilbur Smith, Canada mm-hmm. was really at the forefront of the UFO story, where even the American government was reaching out to Wilbur to get information. Yeah. And it was it was after 1967 where we saw a real... 180 regarding who is leading which way with the start of project blue book down south and everything along those lines and i think we got to get into that because you know 1967 was a pivotal year for canadian aviation it really killed Mm -hmm. the canadian air force it killed the ufo story and and put it more underground in this story or in this lifetime and i think that it all kind of ties in together to what's going on today, Chris. And, Chris, I'm going to get you to hold on right there because we are going to go to break here at the bottom of the hour. Author, researcher, expert on the Shag Harbor UFO incident of 1967, Chris Stiles is with us. we got him for another 90 minutes here on Spaced Out Radio. We're in for a good one tonight, people. Stay tuned. More of Shag Harbor and other UFO cases coming up next on the Mighty SOR. Hot damn, I'm pumped up for this one. Hot damn. It's going to get better. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. That was a quick half hour, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's never enough time, Dave. <laughs> That's true. No. Um, there's so many things I ran into. I was such a busy guy in the 90s on this. I was everywhere, man. I wanted to get them before they went to the grave, you know? Mm-hmm. I can see that, man. Oh, yeah, I talked to Admirals. I talked to Landy more where you talk about, uh, and, you know, and Paul Hellier for that matter. But, uh, oh, yeah, I left no stone unturned, you know. Yeah, but there's all kinds of things we can touch on down the road and, you know, and, of course, hopefully, eventually, Shelburne. You, you'll see a bit how that ties in, and that tormented me worse than Shag Harbor. For 29 years, I got nowhere on that one, and I wouldn't stop. You know, it's just, man, when you've been in and you see one of these divers, you know, and when you see the stuff they did tell you and they talk freely, and then when you'd ask them about that to see them choke up and tears come and say, I can't, and they'd look at the floor, you knew you had something right oh like i said i have questions coming up uh, we have a ton of new people in our chat room tonight uh that mm -hmm. have maybe never been here before and you're here because of chris tonight i i just want to explain to everybody that we are a hybrid of a live ufo show on youtube on our podcast but this show also broadcasts on terrestrial radio. So that's why we have to take these top and bottom of the hour commercial breaks to tie sure. to time in with our radio stations. I know it's a pain in the ass. I know you guys aren't used to it, but unfortunately this is the way it goes and you get to see kind of behind the scenes of what we're talking about and what we're doing. So just bear with us. I guarantee you a good show. Do us a favor, hit that subscribe button, ring that bell. We are literally broadcasting to you seven days a week here on Spaced Out Radio. Uh, quickly, Chris, before I bring you back on, I want to say hi to the demon. Easy win. Welcome to SOR chat. Knight Rider, thank you uh, for your uh, coming on in again. Uh, hectic, no idea what you're talking about, my friend. Uh, break it down for me. Philip Miller, welcome to SOR chat. And who else do we have here? Rain, nice to see you again. And uh, we are caught up there. We are caught up. So, yes, and thank you, uh, Jules, for putting the basic rules up of the chat room. And, yeah. You, you know, Chris, one of the questions I'm going to ask you, if we have sure. some time to it, mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I think it's absolutely hilarious uh, with the Canadian mint getting in on these UFO stories. As, <laughs> and and I want to get your opinion on that. I'm not going to go into too much detail right now, but mm. but the idea that they are cashing in huge on this. Huge. Yes. And mm. I mean, uh, I, I could spend half an hour just talking about the Royal Canadian Mint and, and how I don't understand. I mean, I love it. Don't get me wrong. I think it's great, but I just don't get it. Well, I I think they seem to think, I'm not sure I share this, they're, they're starved for Canadiana that... Um, yes. 
they think will sell, right? I mean, there's great oh, profit yeah. in what they do for them, right? Oh, tell me about it. Um, but when you look at some of the things, I mean, UFOs is probably not even the strangest things that makes the list of memento coins they do, you know. Oh, these I limited you. edition, yeah. But um, it surprises some people. I mean, it surprised me, even though they even gave me one when they came out with Shag Harbor. They they went to uh, Shag Harbor, right? Eh? Oh, didn't they? Oh, yes. That's yes. a they beautiful sent two coin. girls down, yes. That's a beautiful coin, too. There, There is now, we'll get into this in, in just a couple of seconds, because the American buyers are the ones driving up the price on these. I mean, the, yeah. the, orig, yeah. the original Falcon Lake coin is is literally worth like 2500 bucks now on eBay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's crazy. Uh, give me two seconds here. Thank you to W. David Page for the awesome super chat tonight. Very much appreciate uh, the love and support, and it's a, a good way to support what we do on this show on a nightly basis, so thanks so much. And you can also do a little bit of shopping at our website, spacedoutradio.com. We do not have ugly swag, people. Do not have ugly swag. And uh, here we go with the second half hour. Second half hour of Spaced Out Radio is now underway. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Dave Scott. Very much appreciate earning your listening ears. Want to remind you that if you miss most of this show or others, check out our free archives by going to youtube.com forward slash Spaced Out Radio. Do me the favor, hit that subscribe button. Our website, spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the news wire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and you can join us on Patreon in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Author, researcher, expert on Shag Harbor is here with us, Chris Stiles. Thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. We very much appreciate your expertise. Well, again, thank you for your interest. I mean, uh, it's a slice, you know. It's what I do. It is what we love to do, my friend. Now, 1967, uh, this alleged dis- big giant disc craft comes crashing into mm-hmm. the harbor. And yes. all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose on the American side and the Canadian side. Take it from there. Well, um, <clears throat> first of all, let me say it was a disc. Most people, in most descriptions, you just see the lights, right? But remember when I mentioned that uh, document I found that had the, uh, you know, the insight of what the government saw? In that, it says, you know, that this object was 60 foot in diameter. And I often wondered, where did they get that from? And it turns out, only about three years ago did I confirm that the lightkeeper's wife was the only person we know of for sure that I've interviewed 
that saw the moment it struck the water. All the seven people that called and reported it to the air. Plumbing, HVAC, and electrical contractors on Service Titan put up big numbers. How big? In their first two years on Service Titan, contractors typically see a 17% increase in revenue, a 9% increase in average ticket size, and a 10% increase in call booking rates. They also average a 4.7 out of 5 stars on customer review sites. Add it all up and the answer is clear. When solving for profitability, productivity, and growth, Service Titan is an essential part of the equation for contractors like you. Learn more today at servicetitan.com. That's servicetitan.com. Individual results may vary. With Sotic 2 for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, you could show off your skin again. And you know what that means? Beach day. As a Tick 2 inhibitor, Sotic 2 is the only once daily pill of its kind for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Ask your dermatologist about Sotic 2 today and learn more at soclearlyyou.com. That's soclearlyyou.com. So Tick 2 Decravacitinib is a prescription treatment for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis who may benefit from systemic therapy or phototherapy. Don't take if you're allergic to So Tick 2. Serious reactions can occur. Before treatment, get checked for infections, including tuberculosis. So Tick 2 can lower your ability to fight infections. Don't start if you have one. Serious infections, cancers including lymphoma, muscle problems, and changes in certain labs have occurred. Tell your doctor if you have a history of these events, or if you have an infection or symptoms like fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, or if you have history of hepatitis B or C, liver or kidney problems, high triglycerides, or had a vaccine or plan to. So Tick 2 inhibits Tick 2, which is part of the Jack family. People 50 and older with heart disease risk factors who use a Jack inhibitor are at increased risk for certain side effects, sometimes fatal. It's unknown if So Tick 2 has the same risks as Jack inhibitors. Call 1-888-SOTYKTU to learn more. CMP. They lost sight of it behind the tree line. They rode in cars late at night on that moonless night. But the light keeper that was on the island was looking and saw lights coming toward her, and she got up. She was knitting and looked out the window. And just as the UFO was striking the water and the water rushed up over it, those lights reflected back upon it, and she seen the classic flying saucer of it. So we know that. So anyway, you asked me about the Americans. Well, yes, the Americans were involved in this, of course, because where this happened in Chag Harbor, you're very near two U.S. bases that were on Canadian soil at the time, two very important ones. You know, we've all heard of the Dew Line, but there's also yes. a Mid-Canada Line and a Pine Tree Line. And there was a base near Shag Harbor called Canadian Forces Station Barrington at Bacra, and it was that end of the Pine Tree Line. And the other important, and that was a NORAD facility. It was a manned base in the day. It's now automated. The other nearby base was, and it was Canada's most secret base at the time, Canadian Forces Station Shelburne. And its purpose was as a listening post, and it was the coordination for the SOSA system, the sound surveillance system that had been where they'd microphoned the world's oceans at 64 stations, and they came ashore and were coordinated from Shelburne, Nova Scotia. When the base first opened in 1955, it flew the U.S. flag only and only employed U.S. personnel. After 62, it was a shared facility like NORAD, like a NORAD arrangement. That base operated under a cover story, and at the time it claimed that it was a, an oceanographic research station. But in fact, its primary mission was the tracking detection of Soviet submarines during that height of the Cold War, I would call it. So 
when something like this happens, you have an unknown slam into the water, you know, very near these bases in that period of time. Remember, in those days, you only had a 12-mile international limit offshore. Um, you know, it's a cause of great concern. And I have a very good idea nowadays how sensitive the detection system was at Shelburne. In fact, you know, one of the things they did the test at one of the studies, you remember the Mercury Space Program, when the capsules would splash down off Florida, they actually had a specially made uh, small explosive charge on the base of them when it would hit. And it, these they produced an explosive sound at a specific frequency, and Shelburne used to listen for it because this was going to be used as a backup in case they ever had to land there in back weather, couldn't use another backup site. And should they lose the visual or be farther off the coast or not have dependable radar tracking, or that went down, when this explosion, they that sound would be picked up in Shelburne, and they would use time differential equations to pinpoint it from the different SOSA stations, you know, almost like triangulation right? That time gap could be measured and they would do it. And even though it wasn't necessary because they never, I don't think, lost sight of any of the seven mercury capsules, what happened was when it would hit and these things went off, it would always be confirmed and backed up. And it was that accurate. You know, that system worked. Um, but anyway, yeah, the Americans got quite excited. Many of the pilots that flew initially uh, that we're trying to figure out what happened because aircraft were dispatched out of Canadian forces uh, based Greenwood in Nova Scotia. And there were U.S. Orions that were flying grid patterns. And the pilots have told me that I spoke to, it was one of the only missions back then where they could enter each other's uh, airspace without clearance, which was kind of unusual, even though we work so closely together, it would be a matter of procedure, right? And it just went on for days and that, and these things happen. But, you know, when you focus on uh, what was happening there, that initial search, and when that initial search was called off, the underwater search, which, by the way, was basically seven divers with handheld flashlights. That was not a high-tech affair. But they had a very good idea where this thing had struck the water. And, uh, you know, which was about two or 300 yards offshore. That's even re even recorded in the Condon study, by the way. And, and even though they don't tell you the locations or name witnesses in the Condon report, it's case 53 and should be, I think it's page 351, it begins. And, um, you know, but when that search was called off, they were not done with this case. And I'll tell you the proof of this is that, on November the 2nd, now remember the crash happened October the 4th, November the 2nd, almost a month later, a report, uh, um, a story appears in every newspaper in Nova Scotia, military once UFOs reported, and it tells you who and how to get hold of them. And that person was Major Victor Eldridge. Now, he was the executive officer at the back row base, so when I started looking into this in the 90s, he quickly came up as one of the names because, you know, anybody, any name, I didn't leave anybody alone. I contacted him. And he was the first person that I got any real pushback from. And it was, it was odd. When I first contacted him, 
because I thought, well, this is interesting. The search is done, but, you know, they're obviously gathering information. And sometimes the RCMP were going back, as I learned, and knocking on doors and re-interviewing witnesses. So the underwater search might have been canceled, but they were hardly done with the case. And when I attempted to interview Eldridge by telephone, here's what happened. He answered, and I said, is this uh, Vic Eldridge? And he said, yes. And I said, uh, I'm calling about the Shag Harbor incident in 1967. I said, um, you were the ex And he said, uh, what is this again? What are you looking for? And I gave him some details. And he said, no, I, I don't remember that. He said, listen, I'll tell you a lot of crazy things were happening back then. I don't really remember that. And I said, well, that's very strange because your name appears on all these stories that appeared in Nova Scotia appealing for further information. So you were still involved and interested in the case uh, you know, a month later. And he says, well, he said, what is it you're trying to do with this? I said, I'm just trying to get to the truth and find out what it is. And he, he doesn't say anything initially. And I, I figured I'd tag on Dave. I go, well, I was hoping not to have to resort to speculation as to your role in it. But then he says, if I were you, I'd be very careful. Ooh. And I said, what? And he mumbled something about, you know, one call and I could just, and he hung up the phone. I was so mad back then. I was like, <laughs> uh, I drove from Halifax down to Yarmouth and I went to his door. And when he came to the door, I said, you tell the guy that signed your check, I'm too dumb to quit. And I walked well, away. Nice. Nice. I got to ask you, the divers go in. There's yes. seven of them. There has always been this rumor that I heard that the okay. divers saw another craft under there helping the craft get fixed. They saw beings. Did that happen or not? That is the Shelburne case, and that happened seven years earlier, and it's been rolled into it, and it's all explained in my latest book, Sweep Clear 5, NATO's UFO Encounter. Now, when I first started reinvestigating the Shag Harbor incident, right, this story first came up on, get this, Good Friday, 1993. One year, about one year into, you know, talking to Stanton, right? I'd already interviewed some of the fishermen and the reporters and some of the naval personnel, right? So I had a friend in high school and his dad was um, the chief at one point of the fleet diving unit. So I went to him and got all the names of the shag harbor divers and when i first saw him and explains all this in the book of course i said listen um i said uh he gave me the names and he said well chris he said you know about shelburne don't you and i'm like well shag harbor's in shelburne county is that what you're talking about no he said but he said the guys will explain it to you he said some of them dove on both missions or one of them did anyway he says I don't know. He said, talk to them. Uh, some of them, he says, may have just dove on Shelburne. He goes, I'll explain it. He goes, I was running things from up here, and I believe given a course before I had to go to Maritime Command. He said, I was in Port Hawkesbury when it happened, and blah, blah, blah. So when I first tried to interview these divers, I asked him which one was most likely to talk, and I called that guy first. And when I went to him, the first thing he said, he says, you know about Shelburne, don't you? And I said, no, but he said, you could tell me. He goes, wow, it's a long time ago. I I guess we could talk. And um, it was clear he was talking about a separate case. And 
when he started explaining it to me, this is the one that had the two, um, you know, saucers in the bottom, one loaning, you know, lending assistance to the other and live aliens in the water. And, you know, you know, first of all, Dave, you may think that should have made me very happy and excited, but it did not. It seems juvenile now for me to tell you this. But at the time, I was having such success on covering and making these breakthroughs on the Shag Harbor incident and seeing the trouble Stanton and others were having in Roswell and the disagreement on the interpretation of Roswell, you know, with the different researchers. Yes. I was hoping to avoid all that, right? So I had this night. Nice, neat, bulletproof UFO crash that was coming together and getting stronger and stronger. Plumbing, HVAC, and electrical contractors on Service Titan put up big numbers. How big? In their first two years on Service Titan, contractors typically see a 17% increase in revenue, a 9% increase in average ticket size, and a 10% increase in call booking rates. They also average a 4.7 out of 5 stars on customer review sites. Add it all up and the answer is clear. When solving for profitability, productivity, and growth, Service Titan is an essential part of the equation for contractors like you. Learn more today at servicetitan.com. That's servicetitan.com. Individual results may vary. With Sotictu for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, you could show off your skin again. And you know what that means. Beach day. As a Tic2 inhibitor, Sotic2 is the only once daily pill of its kind for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Ask your dermatologist about Sotic2 today and learn more at SoClearlyYou.com. That's SoClearlyYou.com. Sotic2 decravacitinib is a prescription treatment for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis who may benefit from systemic therapy or phototherapy. Don't take if you're allergic to Sotic2. Serious reactions can occur. Before treatment, get checked for infections, including tuberculosis. Sotic2 can lower your ability to fight infections. Don't start if you have one. Serious infections, cancers including lymphoma, muscle problems, and changes in certain labs have occurred. Tell your doctor if you have a history of these events, or if you have an infection or symptoms like fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, or if you have history of hepatitis B or C, liver or kidney problems, high triglycerides, or had a vaccine or plan to. So Tic2 inhibits Tic2, which is part of the Jack family. People 50 and older with heart disease risk factors who use a Jack inhibitor are at increased risk for certain side effects, sometimes fatal. It's unknown if Sotic2 has the same risks as Jack inhibitors. Call 1-888-SOTYKTU to learn more. I, I often called it, and I still do, the gift that keeps on giving, and it's not talking about monetary, believe me. Well, you know, this came up, and I was like, oh, God, here we go. This is going to be like Roswell. Hip. No, it didn't happen here. It happened here. Don't listen to Gerald Anderson. Do You know, and all these different. Right. I thought, here we go. Here we go. But what I what this when I said is this the same as sixty seven or whatever and he says oh well no he says oh god he says I don't know I wouldn't have known the other one was sixty seven seems to me the first diver said it was back earlier probably around the Cuban Missile Crisis you know nobody could name a date nobody would name a ship right. And the more you started probing for information, they, they'd start to clam up. And they'd say, look, I'll tell you anything you want about Shag Harbor. I'll tell you anything about their name and other cases like Lake Pockwalk or Lower Sackville that I would come to investigate later. When you say Shelburne. Now, here's the thing. There was a friend of mine that was with me who had a military career that came along and heard these interviews. I, they would not let me record them. Well, later on, when people came in, like future co-authors of mine, like Graham Sims and, well, Don Ledger for sure, right? Yes. None of these people had heard this testimony out of the mouths of the divers. 
you know, they only ever spoke with me and the late Bob McDonald, right, who used to help me. Well, they didn't hear this, but, you know, you could talk about Shag Harbor, they'd answer anything. And eventually I would find the paperwork to, but whenever they talk about Shelburne, and they would make, the message was clear from all of them that spoke at all. Now, most of them didn't. Most of them, when you'd go to the door, you'd open the door and you'd mention Shelburne and they'd go, um, we can't talk about that. Door closed. That was it, right? But anyway, eventually I, I went to the homes of some of them and we'd start to uh, go, but it was like pulling teeth. This is all well documented in the book. However, a couple of years into the future, by the mid-90s, when some of the first documentaries were being done on Chag Harbor, of course, they heard the story, and I was still trying to separate it, and it was my feeling all along that it was disconnected from Chag Harbor. But co-authors, certainly television directors, everybody else thought, you know, it's a great ending to Chag Harbor, right? And they'd say, well, Chris, can you say it isn't connected? And I'd, no, I can't. My gut reaction is it isn't. And I'd start to explain to them why, but, oh, you know what I mean? It was just the cherry on top, right, Dave? That's exactly it. Exactly. And, it. yes, and I expressed a number of times, and, and for people who doubt that, I have slides now where I show when I was presenting at MUFON or some of the papers I published where I make it very clear that I think this is a separate case. In fact, I only would ever call it the Shelburne story. And um, I... You know, I and I say in it in 1996, I, I did a paper called Chag Harbor in Perspective when I spoke in Greensboro, North Carolina, the July 4th weekend. And, you know, the MUFON used to publish your, your presentations then, right? Yeah. And in that, it says quite clear for now, the Shelburne story remains that, in my opinion, a story such may not always be the case. It's not connected to the Shag Harbor incident, right? Most all other researchers disagree with me. Right. But I was the guy that heard the voices. I saw the emotional distress. I saw these guys break down. Right. It never left me. You know, so I, I just kept looking. And the first half of that book I mentioned that just came out this summer. Um, I mean, for 29 years, I looked for some kind of evidence, some kind of hard proof that this was separate and it took until between Christmas and New Year's 2022 before I found it. And um, I, I'd really given up the case. It just, you know, Shag Harbor, I've always called the gift that keeps on giving because anything we've discovered since, like for example, the testimony I mentioned earlier of the lightkeeper, you know, yeah. we were just able to locate her and sit her down. Um, the near collision with uh, Pan Am Flight 160, a cargo flight that night. You know, all this stuff has, has become solid. The paperwork's with it. It came together. Um, you know, Shag has been a great case. I was just so lucky, and I was persistent. I mean, I put the work in, but the strength is in the case. You know, it, it was there. It was always there. But I always referred to Shelburne as the fly in the ointment. And it tormented me to death, right? And I kept working on it. And, um, you know, anyone that reads the book, they come back and they go, oh, my God, you know, the things I did to try to get to it. You know, like, and, you know, we don't have time tonight to go through all of it, believe me. But, uh, you know, I kept coming up dry. But I would, I would pursue anything that had the possibility. Because, and, you know, it was all based on that emotional impact of hearing these men tell the story. You know, 
you know, you know, being a diver in the Navy is a pretty nasty job at times, right? You haul your dead friends or a crashed aircraft, right? You, you get in some awful life and death situations down there. And it's a tough job. It's a special calling. And when you talk about a UFO case and these guys are quite open. And by the way, in this new book, I named them all without pseudonyms. And I explain why I've finally done this, even though some of them are still alive. Um, there's a lot there to unpack, believe me. But, um, and there's some surprises there. One of them, get this, who was there, who I got to talk to me, never told his colleagues in Shag Harbor about Shelburne in 1960. But you know who they did tell, Dave, besides me? Get this, the first female divers in the Navy, the so-called Cormorant Experiment, 1984. Really? Yes. And I'll tell you why. Because this was a different generation. Basically, over the years since 1960, how, how long ago was that, by the way? Eisenhower still president. Okay? Long this time. Before Kennedy gets elected. That's right. And, you know, one of the things I stress on the stage is there's a far greater distance between 1960 and 67 than 67 and now in terms of our lives. In 1960, people trusted the government. Picture that one. Hard That's believe. gone. By 67, they didn't. You know what I mean? Yes. It's, it's a different world in 60, Dave. It's hard to get across to them, right? UFOs don't crash, right? There is no Roswell. I know. And then the Americans go, Chris, that was 47. Yeah, and everybody forgot about it. The only mention I've ever seen. In fact, I was on, um, I, I can say this, I guess, Jimmy Church's show, and he said, yeah. well, I've never found a book that had, and I said, well, Jimmy, 1966, Flying Saucer, Serious Business. You get about two little paragraphs about Roswell. But let's close enough, let's say the world forgot about it, right? So Roswell was not an influence on Shag Harbor, right? You know what I mean? And, and by the way, like I said, nobody reported a UFO. The only reason people rushed to the shore, they thought there had been a plane crash. It was like when Swiss Air 111 went down in Peggy's Cove. The concern was for survivors, right? Yes, that it, it, it UFOs was the last thing on their mind, right? But they saw them in the air. They saw it on the water. They saw the Navy look. They saw the statements, right? But there's so much more to the story. I mean, when the government is like saying, we believe it's a real deal in the documents, when the government is like looking a month later, right? And when I find these divers and they say, listen, Shag Harbor it was a UFO and said it's real. By the time we got there, it was all over. And they go, but boy, do you know about Shelburne? And the expression they all use, the ones that talk, they'd say it and they'd all know it is, there was no doubt. And what do you mean by that? There's no doubt. I got to tell, tell, tell you a weird story. We got two minutes I'm just left. Good friends of mine in town, Phil and Pauline, where I live, uh, they helped me with my local ghost tour. But they are actually originally from Newfoundland. And one time, oh, yeah. a number of years ago, they were camping out at Peggy's Cove, and they had a beautiful German shepherd. And while they were there at 8 o'clock at every night, while they were there, the German shepherd would absolutely start shrieking and take off and go hiding underneath some, some bushes or, or behind a tree or whatever. 
And when they found out the reason why, it was because the Pan Am flight crashed at 8 o'clock. And, the Swiss Air. Or Swiss Air had crashed at 8 o'clock. And the dog was hearing, because people still claim today that you can hear the plane hitting the water around the anniversary. And the dog was allegedly hearing this happen during that time. Isn't that something? Yeah. yeah. You know what my memory is of that night? I got a weird one. We one I was minute. on the phone with Michael Stranick, the former director of MUFON Canada. Yes. And I heard all these helicopters leaving Sherwater. I was living in downtown Dartmouth at the time. And I said, oh, God. I said, Michael, something's happened. Somebody pissed in the pickles. I said, there's so many flying gas tanks going overhead right now. Something happened. This is before it hit the news. And that's, that, and that's my terrible memory. And, of course, the next day I went, oh, my God, when you found out what it was, oh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I hear you there. Chris, we have a ton of UFO stuff to talk about here in the next hour where we have you on Spaced Out Radio tonight. Your information on Shag Harbor, second and none. We will get into a little bit more of Shelburne and, of course, what is happening with Canada and the UFO scene these days as the UFO topic gets a little, little political and Mm -hmm. a little bit more of a narrative than we've ever seen before. Spaced Out Radio with our special guest, Chris Stiles, from the beautiful maritime provinces of Canada, Shag Harbor. Yeah, one of my favorite stories on Spaced Out Radio coming up next. All right, we are clear. Chris, I'm going to take a quick break here. we got about five and a half minutes. I'm going to sure. set you back in the green room. And I'll be right back, okay? No problem. All right. We'll be right back, audience.
All right, I am back. Hey, Griff, how you doing? Let's bring Chris back in. We Runa, good morning. Mm. And who else do we got in here that's hopped on in? Lavira, thank you again. Very much appreciate your love, Lavira. having fun chris yeah it's always fun day but no this is uh this is good um we've got uh, you know i know it's not a full hour more or less the hour left yeah um let me bounce this off you and see how it is i could probably wrap up shelburne in about 10 minutes oh i want to get into that yeah we're getting into that next because because we're going to rewrite canadian history when i do perfect in a major way Let's do Actually, it. Actually, world history. Let's do it. But, um, yeah. Let's do it. Uh, we got 20 seconds left. I want to say a big thank you to W. David Page and Lavira Times 2 for the great super chats. Very much appreciate the love. Actually, uh, Lavira Times 3 just saw that one. And uh, very much appreciate the love and support. Don't forget that you can shop at our Spaced Out Radio website as well. Here we go. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and on Facebook, Spaced Out Radio Show. Hour number two of Spaced Out Radio is now underway. Good to have you with us. My name is Dave Scott. Very much appreciate earning your listening ears wherever you are on this beautiful planet we call Earth. Hello to everyone listening in on our terrestrial affiliates around North America, digitally on Odyssey Radio, TalkStream Live, and KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. The Desert Clam has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. The Crops. Or Decryops, pardon me. Decryops is your password. Use it wisely, space travelers, as the clam sets a password each and every night right here on Spaced Out Radio. Our website, spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out Bumblefoot, read the newswire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and you can join us on Patreon in the SOR Space Travelers Club. All right, we continue on with author, researcher, experiencer of the unknown. Chris Stiles is here, and he's got a brand new book out talking about another ocean crash in Shelburne. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. What happened in Shelburne? Well, what happened in Shelburne, <laughs> I telling you now that I know, it, it feels so funny. I looked for these answers. Dave for 29 years before they found me and uh, just before New Year's Day 2023 uh, 2022 and here's if you boil it down here's the essence just like how I boiled down down Shag Harbor or what happened in October again it's October it's always October down here 1960 seven years before Shag Harbor right? There was 
a NATO minesweeping mission. And in those days, Canada's Navy, we had a 60-ship Navy then, we certainly don't now, was much more involved with NATO missions. And on this one, it was a minesweeping mission that was planned to happen at the mouth of Shelburne Harbor. Basically, it was 10 U.S. warships and eight of ours. And they went down and laid an eight-mile dog-legged course. And it was the Americans went down and laid it full of mines, submerged mines, moored mines, floating mines, etc. And what they did was um, clear out and then sent the Canadians in to sweep it. And after it was swept, the last part of the mission was to send the two large ships. And the two large ships were HMCS Cape Scott, which was the command ship of the mission. And get this. here's a, There's so many shockers in this, I had no idea. My father served on that mission as the medic on oh, the ship. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that's, oh, that's another story. And... Um, the other thing, and the other large ship would have been the USS Orleans Parish. And after the, the course was swept, these two ships were to, you know, because they were the large ships, were to make passage through. Now, the Plumbing, HVAC, and electrical contractors on Service Titan put up big numbers. How big? In their first two years on Service Titan, contractors typically see a 17% increase in revenue, a 9% increase in average ticket size, and a 10% increase in call booking rates. They also average a 4.7 out of 5 stars on customer review sites. Add it all up and the answer is clear. When solving for profitability, productivity, and growth, Service Titan is an essential part of the equation for contractors like you. Learn more today at ServiceTitan.com. That's ServiceTitan.com. Individual results may vary. With Sotic 2 for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, you could show off your skin again. And you know what that means. Beach day. As a Tick 2 inhibitor, Sotic 2 is the only once daily pill of its kind for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Ask your dermatologist about Sotic 2 today and learn more at SoClearlyYou.com. That's SoClearlyYou.com. Sotic 2 decravacitinib is a prescription treatment for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis who may benefit from systemic therapy or phototherapy. Don't take if you're allergic to Sotic 2. Serious reactions can occur. Before treatment, get checked for infections, including tuberculosis. Sotic 2 can lower your ability to fight infections. Don't start if you have one. Serious infections, cancers including lymphoma, muscle problems, and changes in certain labs have occurred. Tell your doctor if you have a history of these events, or if you have an infection or symptoms like fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, or if you have history of hepatitis B or C, liver or kidney problems, high triglycerides, or had a vaccine or plan to. So Tick 2 inhibits Tick 2, which is part of the Jack family. People 50 and older with heart disease risk factors who use a Jack inhibitor are at increased risk for certain side effects, sometimes fatal. It's unknown if So Tick 2 has the same risks as Jack inhibitors. Call 1-888-SOTYKTU to learn more. These mines were a new British uh, innovation. They were... Um, proximity mines. You didn't have to hit them to go off, but these were dummy ones. They would record if they would have gone off, right? So this is yeah. a test to see what kind of job they did. The two ships begin to enter, and according to the diver story back before this, they told me that they never said they were on a minesweeping mission, but the first diver that speaks said, when I asked him, well, Harry, why did you go into the water? Why did they send divers down? And he said, all they had us frigging around with some new British mines or something. We went down. But he never described it as a mine-sweeping mission, right? So it was always vague, you know, that way. But he did say that. 
And he says, oh, my God, Chris, about an hour into the mission, he says, it took all day. We got the ships assembled at Shelburne. We started in about 60 ships, uh, 60 minutes or an hour into the mission. All hell broke loose and the panic goes. And, you know, they send us back down. And here's two flying saucers on the bottom and live aliens in the water. And once they convinced them that it was real, they yanked it out and all hell panic broke. And we ended up sitting over these things. Everybody got a sidearm, almost like we were going to be boarded. And, you know, it was an awful mission and it went on, you know. So once I'd found uh, this story, which, by the way, was because of one sentence in a Wikipedia article triggered it. But that's, that's only because 29 years I'd looked through ship's logs and couldn't even place a Navy ship in that time frame in Shelburne Harbor. So when I saw this one sentence in Wikipedia, by the way, for Dad Ship, get this. I had a dream that I was under a table. <laughs> I was five years old. And this really happened. And I'm hearing Dad's friends are playing crib, drinking gym in our, uh, gin in our kitchen on Octoloni Street in Dartmouth. And they're talking about Shelburne. And it's all kind of fuzzy to me, you know, the mysterious world of adult conversation. But enough of it stuck before I dreamed about this. Now, when I wake up, this is at a point when, as the book explains, I've given up on the case of Shelburne that I was ever going to get it, right? I went to Wikipedia, not because I was buying into the dream, which I largely discounted, although I thought, well, there's a little something there. I remember something about that. I went in to look because I was wondering what Dad's ship was because I knew it was a supply ship, but it was more than that. And I looked up HMC as Cape Scott. And I'd looked it up before, but, you know, wikis, they get updated, right? Yes. One sentence, one sentence turned all this around at the end of the ship's, uh, you know, his service history. And at the end, and it's simply this, Dave, and it says, in 1960, HMCS Cape Scott, uh, you know, was involved with a NATO minesweeping mission called Sweep Clear 5 in Shelburne Harbor. That's all it said. And I thought, oh, my God, after looking through thousands of pages of ship's logs for all those years back then and not being able to place any Navy ship in the harbor, I'm starting to get excited. I'm thinking, could that be it? Could that be it? And how do you find out more? And, um, you know, what's Sweep Clear 5? And, and, you know, but you know what I remembered is back then the Navy had a magazine, The Crow's Nest. So the next day I went to a secondhand store and I went through all, you know, they had a bunch of, you know, military stuff. And I go down and I found a December 1960 copy of The Crow's Nest. And had the, get this, the bounty on the cover, you know, because they just made the movie with Marilyn Brando. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I go in and I read about Sweep Clear 5. It names all the ships, describes this NATO mission in Shelburne Harbor. But, of course, the Canadians, the, the slant on the story was, and a good time was had by all. We love working with our American friends, right? But it named every ship. So I... Before I could even request ship's logs, I just went back to Wikipedia and other more scholarly sources and started looking up, you know, the service history of these ships. A lot said nothing. But the first thing I learned, Dave, is something was wrong because when I read the American versions, like, for example, I looked up USS Yazoo, one of the ships, and here's what it says. On October 15th, while being involved with the Sweep Clear 5 mission, 
The command ship of the mission, HMCS Cape Scott, suffers material casualties and and has complete engine failure and was going to run aground in, Shea, in uh, Shelburne Harbor and was rescued. The ships have been ordered out of the harbor, but USS Yazoo got medals because she came back and towed her to safety and safe anchorage. Well, there's none of this in the Canadian version. And when I started looking at other ships and things, so, of course, the next step was to request the ship's log for the time frame for these ships. Well, the first thing I found out was the Blue Throat, one of the Canadian ships. They don't know what happened. The log's gone. The diving platform, YTM-8, has gone. But they did say they had the log for, uh, and this is 2022, still in the COVID, right? Right. Well, you know, and I knew from all the other things I'm doing all the time looking for, for files that, you know, things had slowed down. So, you know, they're telling me it's going to be some time. Turned out it took seven months of the day before I got it. So the first thing I did was turn to October the 15th to see, and yes, she broke down. They were ordered out of the harbor, complete engine failure, all kinds of things go wrong. But then I went back and I dug out, and, you know, because she was commanding 18 ships, the, the logbook for the Cape Scott, it's just full of Navy jargon. Now, I'm pretty good with that stuff, but I was going to, you know, it's written in a little tiny pencil, you know. I was going to have to go back and get a magnifying glass and, you know, storyboard this and compare it with other ships and stuff. Anyway, I went back, I decided to put the brakes on and I went back to the divers because even though when I recorded the memory, they wouldn't let me record them. In fact, one of them, the guy who told me about the, you know, the time frame, the Cuban Missile Crisis and all hell broke loose and this, you know, and he, he was trying to pull the plug when we went to the door. He went to Maritime Command, but his wife had been listening on the phone. Thank God for women. This is how we get in. And when he went there, he says, no, I, I was going to call you guys, but I wanted to say it to your face. I went to Maritime Command, and I should be talking to you. And, uh, you know, his wife came to the door, and I said, well, Harry, you described yourself as a rebel. How does it feel having the government tell you you can't? You know, I was kind of laid in thick, but it wasn't going to work. His wife come up behind him and said, oh, God damn it, invite them in. I made coffee and sandwiches. Just, just, just say what you can. And we went in and talked shop, and he remembered my dad being on the ship and that. And I took out a tape recorder I had that I was going to record it with, and I took the back off and let the babies fall on the floor. I said, we're just talking. You can deny it. But uh, And that was how we got the first interview, right? You know. Anyway, I ran out, and I would make notes when I would do this with the divers, right, when you'd leave the home. So... I went out and I made the notes. I went back. I've kept those notes from 29 years ago. And I went through them. And um, one of the things it, it said in it was 60 minutes in, like I'm telling you, all hell breaks loose on this mission. So now that I got the ship's log for the command ship, the Cape Scott, Dad's boat, and that's a hard thing for me to get through, uh, he took it with him to the grave, eh? Oh, too we, bad. We would, I would ask about it because we would talk about Shag Harbor, of course. Anyway, here's the thing. I've got the log, so I go back to the start of the mission. I look at his story. All the ships assembled, took all day. Well, they started arriving 5, 6 a.m. at the mouth of Shelburne Harbor. By noon, they're ready to start going through the swept channel. And I'm looking at the log, and it says, entered swept channel 1242, you know. 
military time. And I'm looking and I'm going through and about 60 minutes in. So I start going, there's lots of entries, you know, the ships and I'm going down. I get about an hour in, there's nothing, Dave, right? But remember when they're telling me this, it's already 33 years old, right? It's now 63 years old, this story. So I go, I get to about 90 minutes in. You're not going to believe what I found. And here's where, it, and this changes history. Oh, yeah, I'm looking for some excitements or how did he put it? The, um, all hell broke loose, the shit hit the fan, whatever. You know what, you know what I find? Remember I told you, if you're persistent, you don't always find something good, but you'll find something better. Yes. Here it comes. DEFCON 1. Interesting. DEFCON 1. According to Wikipedia, according to the history books, that's never happened, not even by a commander in the field. For anybody unfamiliar with the DEFCON system, it's usually controlled by the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Pentagon, right? They set it. But commanders in the field can set it for a region. But if you look it up, it'll tell you that that's never happened. The highest we've been is DEFCON 2, and that was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But, and that only applied to SAC, Strategic Air Command. But this is not an Internet rumor. I've got the ship's log in my hand, right, or a copy from, with the cover letter from Library and Archives Canada. I'm at October the 12th, you know. It says, entered swept channel. 90 minutes later, I go down, and suddenly... You know, and there's a special stamp put in that the captain signed of the ship and everything. And and it has to have the right verbiage. And I've spoken with this with, with, you know, researchers that are right into the military and like Jan Aldrich and that. And when I first sent it to him to get opinions and that, he looked at it. You know, he concurred that, you know, it was genuine for so plumbing hvac and electrical contractors on service titan put up big numbers how big in their first two years on service titan contractors typically see a 17 percent increase in revenue a nine percent increase in average ticket size and a 10 percent increase in call booking rates they also average a 4.7 out of 5 stars on customer review sites add it all up and the answer is clear when solving for profitability productivity and growth service titan is an essential part of the equation for contractors like you learn more today at servicetitan.com that's servicetitan.com Individual results may vary. With Sotictu for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, you could show off your skin again. And you know what that means. Beach day. As a Tic2 inhibitor, Sotic2 is the only once-daily pill of its kind for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Ask your dermatologist about Sotic2 today and learn more at SoClearlyYou.com. That's SoClearlyYou.com. Sotic2, Decravacitinib, is a prescription treatment for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis who may benefit from systemic therapy or phototherapy. Don't take if you're allergic to Sotic2. Serious reactions can occur. Before treatment, get checked for infections, including tuberculosis. Sotic2 can lower your ability to fight infections. Don't start if you have one. Serious infections, cancers including lymphoma, muscle problems, and changes in certain labs have occurred. Tell your doctor if you have a history of these events, or if you have an infection or symptoms like fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, or if you have history of hepatitis B or C, liver or kidney problems, high triglycerides, or had a vaccine or plan to. So Tick2 inhibits Tick2, which is part of the Jack family. People 50 and older with heart disease risk factors who use a Jack inhibitor are at increased risk for certain side effects, sometimes fatal. It's unknown if So Tick2 has the same risks as Jack inhibitors. Call 1-888-SOTYKTU to learn more. Many reasons, right? I could bore you with the jargon and military details. But yeah, assume DEFCON 1. 
that's at that time, particularly we'd only been in the system a year. At that time, it had an even stricter interpretation than it does now. This is like, it means nuclear war is imminent or has begun or the equivalent thereof. That Chubber is insane. Neighbor. That is insane. Yeah. yeah. And and in the book, it has a copy, you know, it has an excerpt of the page. I had to blow it up quite a bit so it was legible at all, right? But, um, you, you know, I, I sent Chris Wachowski, for example, who called. He liked the book. I sent him a copy of that whole month of the ship's log, right? You know, but often these things are poor copy, but that part where the entry's in, it's very legible and clear, right? Uh, about three hours later, they're back down to DEFCON 5. But um, you have to wonder what it is, and the book explains that it's a complex situation. But, you know, when I started going down, I'm, I'm 60 minutes in, and I remember my hopes kind of sag, and I get to 90 minutes, and I see this assumed DEFCON 1, lower lifeboats like this. And um, remember I told you about the engine failure, and they anchor, yes. and then it's a, they anchor in seven fathoms. That's only 42 feet of water, right? And the, the ships don't move for four days. And as the book explains, I met other people that I know. My greatest shock is I had a friend I worked with for four years at the Daily News, a former tabloid in Dartmouth. He had an Air Force career, a long one. He was there working as a contract courier. And after I left the firm, I ran into him one day. He explains it in the book. And he said, what are you doing now? And I said, oh, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And I held out a couple of Shag Harbor documents. This is like 1990 five or four four actually and he just looks at them and he thinks it's about Shelburne. he says oh jesus how'd you hear about that and i said well i i i didn't realize at first and he starts talking about scott he says i hated being there he's i said you mean you were there you were air force he's i thought i was every time the goddamn navy said would pick up something off the bottom or you know, find some piece of garbage that fell from space or something, they'd bring me out because identification was his specialty, eh, in his career. And he starts telling me the story, and um, it's just crazy. But here's the other corker, is that I found other people that were present. The last day of the mission, the 19th, the Americans come aboard. By the way, they fly the admiral of the fleet out to the ship after this, right? Um, at the time, you couldn't land on our destroyer rescue. You could land on Cape Scott. You, you could actually land a Labrador helicopter on her. She had a big deck for it. And they go out. The Americans come aboard the ship, and they have a conference meeting about this. There was a protocol officer wandering around. He goes down to the mess where the men drink. And, of course, you know, that that's unique to him, right? Now, as the divers told me, when the enlisted men would go below, they would treat them friendly. You know, they didn't mind the Americans. They'd get along. They used to like to tease them. When they'd be tied up in port, they'd be looking at them and nod. The guys would be drinking Coke on a Sunday morning. They'd drink half a beer and pour it over the side. You know, to, yes. you know that kind of foolishness, right? Anyway, during this meeting, this protocol officer and his wife's is wandering around, goes below deck down to the mess, right? All the divers were sitting in the corner every day talking. When this officer comes in, um, he's listening to them talk and shop, and he goes over and suggests to them they should not be talking shop. Uh, he said, you certainly shouldn't be talking about that Russian sub we're sitting over. Well, the chief diver, the dive master, he jumps up, and the table flips over, and he grabs the American. 
by his uniform, right? And says, that's the trouble with you Yankee boys, he says. You see the red menace everywhere. He said, the trouble is the red menace below the ship, he goes. It's not from Moscow or the Black Sea, is it, he says. Might be Mars, but I think a lot farther away. He said, and if it wanted to do something, there's nothing we could do about it. He says, I hope you guys don't have any plans to go down there when we leave and go all John Wayne on it or something. <laughs> well, what the guys are trying to tear him away from the mirror because he's in deep doo-doo, of course, for doing that, right? And he runs upstairs and comes down with the captain and all that. But I've a bunch of people have were witness to that event. And, you know, he was even able to name the diver. And I, I told nothing to this guy, ran into him. Like, so very compelling. But I wasn't able to bring this together. Can you imagine the frustrating for another 29 years to connect it, right? But um, great stuff. But, I mean, yeah, the DEFCON 1, nobody said they were, I was going to find that, right? And I'm looking for all hell breaking loose. Well, I think that qualifies, Dave. Don't you? I you would know? agree. DEFCON 1? I, would, I yeah. would totally agree. It makes you wonder, you know, more than anything, when people say, well, this must have felt good, Chris, or this must. It makes you wonder what else was missing because nobody looked. You know, really, like like what other it, cases? Because right I know of some I've never been able to get to yet. And I'm doing this with no budget, no anything, just persistence and not being afraid to make mistakes. You, you don't repeat them, hopefully. You know, I made plenty of mistakes, I'll tell you. But you know what? I did it, right? I persisted. You'll learn. And, um, you know, there it is. You know, I, I mean, um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's still hard to believe. But, you know, it made so much sense. And, you know... But I think everything in the book I explained as best as I can. You know, there's still a lot of details. But you know what I found since? I'm working on another book in between, by the way, on a close encounter in Shag Harbor. That's new to me. But I'm hoping to fill in more. But you know what I have just discovered, and I'm seeking the files for now. And most of this stuff, and by the way, there's a very different experience in my life than Stan Friedman. You know how Stan was so famous you know, we worked on certain things together for holding up documents, all that black ink. Yes. I don't know what this means. I'm not implying anything by it. All the stuff I've had released to me over years, never have I gotten any black ink. Never. I, I, I understand why, though. Okay, and I'm not saying it's a good excuse. But the media in this country, and I'm saying this as a former member of the mainstream media... They don't know how to cover this topic. They're more worried. No. They're more worried about about everything else from uh, you know uh, whatever it may be across it. This is not a country of, or we've turned into a country, or Canada has of media that doesn't dig into deep stories anymore. It's infotainment, and you don't qualify Listen. for that. That's way too deep for them. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I know, because I got a call from, what was it, what did, was he, Daniel Otis there? Yes, and I know Dan. It just, anyway, um, you mentioned the, the the letter from Larry McGuire, right? You know, and that's such a thing nowadays, right? You know, much was made of that. Yes. You know, his, his efforts and, and that letter he sent to Anita Anand, right? 
Yes. And and it's it's all interesting. You know what my reaction was when I seen it? What Mike I, I shouldn't say reaction, I'm like interesting was my reaction. Tell you what my concern was about it. Well hold that concern. Because we're getting into the political side of Canadian UFOs with Chris right. Stiles when we return on Spaced Out Radio right after this. Stay tuned, everybody. We got Chris for another 30 minutes. All right, we are clear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <coughs> Mm. <coughs> Robert Rayom, welcome to the show from New Hampshire. Penman. Oh, I'm so sore. Um, yeah, I gave uh, Larry McGuire his uh, longest public interview on UFOs mm-hmm. last year. I'll have to listen to that, Dave. It's in archives, eh, of course. I'll have to listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I have no trouble with Larry McGuire. It's not that, but I'll tell you, well, well, maybe I do. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you my concern when we get to it and you'll understand when you hear it. Um, when I read the letter to Anita and Ann, I want to say it's a perfect letter until I read the CC list at the bottom and the last name really concerned me sending it to general Wright. Hmm. Hmm. I'll tell you why, what his job really is. <laughs> Have you ever heard of JTFX? You heard of JTF2? I've heard of JTF2. There is a JTFX. Guess really? what they do? Oh, it exists. Yes, absolutely. Oh, really? And and you know where I first found the rumor and the proof of it? Are you ready for this? On Mary Simon's website, because she approved their shoulder badge. And when I read their mission of what it was, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. looking at their shoulder patch here. I'm trying to bring it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Plumbing, HVAC, and electrical contractors on Service Titan put up big numbers. How big? In their first two years on Service Titan, contractors typically see a 17% increase in revenue, a 9% increase in average ticket size, and a 10% increase in call booking rates. They also average a 4.7 out of 5 stars on customer review sites. Add it all up and the answer is clear. When solving for profitability, productivity, and growth, Service Titan is an essential part of the equation for contractors like you. Learn more today at servicetitan.com. That's servicetitan.com. Individual results may vary. With Sotic 2 for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, you could show off your skin again. And you know what that means. Beach day. As a Tick 2 inhibitor, Sotic 2 is the only once daily pill of its kind for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Ask your dermatologist about Sotic 2 today and learn more at SoClearlyYou.com. That's SoClearlyYou.com. 
Sotic 2 Ducravacitinib is a prescription treatment for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis who may benefit from systemic therapy or phototherapy. Don't take if you're allergic to Sotic 2. Serious reactions can occur. Before treatment, get checked for infections, including tuberculosis. Sotic 2 can lower your ability to fight infections. Don't start if you have one. Serious infections, cancers including lymphoma, muscle problems, and changes in certain labs have occurred. Tell your doctor if you have a history of these events or if you have an infection or symptoms like fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, or if you have history of hepatitis B or C, liver or kidney problems, high triglycerides, or had a vaccine or plan to. So Tic2 inhibits Tic2, which is part of the Jack family. People 50 and older with heart disease risk factors who use a Jack inhibitor are at increased risk for certain side effects, sometimes fatal. It's unknown if So Tic2 has the same risks as Jack inhibitors. Call 1-888-SOTYKTU to learn more. Got the daggers and the ravens. Yeah, it's got the... Yeah. Trying to figure out... Well, ravens mean dark. I always like trying to break down what patches mean. Ah, well, anyway. You you can read up about it after, but the thing is this. You know, about 11 years ago, um, because of the Five Eyes Alliance and these things, right? Right. I mean... This stuff was largely removed unless it was a small local personal issue from the RCMP and from CSIS, and it made a matter of military intelligence, right? And that's when it got turned over to JTFX, right? Now, generally speaking, their jobs had more to do with overseas espionage and things like that, right? But the guys that are in plain clothes and doing desk jobs, right, they could be sent, for example, to retrieve the Shelburne film that was taken of this underwater. It was filmed and left at, in Dartmouth at Grove Street at the uh, Defense Research Establishment there, right, now called, what is it, Research Development Canada. It's always being rebranded, eh? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know who they handed it to. You know, the guys, they drove it up in an army deuce and a half colors, and they handed it to Mace Coffee. He gets a chapter in the book, and Jason Greenblatt, right? And, uh, you know, it shows the aliens in the water, apparently. No kidding. Well, yeah. Well, these guys, they go back, you know, when stuff like this surfaces and clean it up. Gotcha. Do you think that there is still debris in Shag Harbor and Shelburne under the I ocean? Think th- I think there is in Shelburne the possibility. You know, we found the disc, um, a U.S. Navy disc on Bon Portage Island. Uh, one of the things we didn't get into is, like I told you about the lifekeeper's wife seeing the crash, yes. right? Yeah. He was sent out that night to do a patrol along the island by the Coast Guard. He went out the next morning at first light, did it, and claims to have found an artifact and turned it over to the U.S. Navy. Um, We weren't sure we believed him because he was the only person to ever change his testimony. And he stood before a crowd of people. I challenged him. He turned red as a beat. I said, I said to him, I said, Irvin, Irvin Banks was his name. I said, if you lied to me back in 93, he was the only, only person ever changed his testimony. Why should anybody here believe you now? And he turned red as a fire truck. He said, I, I deserve that. He says, I held it from you, right? And he claimed he found the artifact. Well, after he passed away and we found his first wife after all those years who told us about the disc and that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, she said, yeah, he found something. He wanted to bring it. She says, I wouldn't let that son of a bitch bring it in the house. She was mad at him because the night 
she saw the crash. She tried to wake him up, and he kept saying she was crazy. He wouldn't get over to bed initially. jeez. Oh, All right, we got uh, eight seconds here. Thank you, Kevin. Lavera times three and W. David Page for the great super chats. Here we go, everybody. We pass the halfway point of Spaced Out Radio tonight. Good to have you with us. My name is Dave Scott. Very much appreciate earning your listening ears. Reminder to all of you that if you miss portions of this show or others, check out our free archives by going to youtube.com forward slash Spaced Out Radio. Do me the favor, hit that subscribe button. Our website, spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the newswire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and you can join the Space Travelers Club on Patreon. We have until the top of the hour. Chris Stiles is here. We're talking about Shag Harbor. We're talking about Shelburne, two UFO crashes in the Maritimes, and what's the Canadian government got up with it? Uh, Chris, you know, I asked you kind of during the break about about whether or not there is still debris down there. Are you surprised that out of all the Discovery Channel type of shows where they've taken these submarines to go look for debris, whether it's the Titanic, whether it's the Blue Hole of Belize or wherever it may be, that nobody really has taken the time or put the money forward to see if there are UFO artifacts or or crash retrieval parts in Shag Harbor or Shelburne? Well, <clears throat> I did a little cursory underwater search in 95 in Shag Harbor uh, with support from uh, Paramount Television there, you know. and But it was, um, you know, many years later, and, and uh, I never considered it all that likely down there just because of the nature of the story. You know, there was nothing suggesting there was anything left behind, but it was relatively cheap, and, you know, back in the day, you know, like I say, it was basically uh, seven divers that went down in pairs, you know, with handheld flashlights, right? So we had to look, right? I didn't expect to find anything there. I think there's a greater chance in Shelburne because we have a pretty good idea, too, where it hit. Now, there's a bit of a problem because in those days, the Canadian Navy wasn't the best at navigation, at plotting things, right? But we have other clues because they sat still for about four days. They took some radar fixes. And whereas you can't always trust the Latin long to be very accurate. Remember, this is in the days of Laurency. There's no GPS, right? But what you can often count on is the, the bathymetry, you know, the depth. And when they describe the anchorage, they came to single anchor, it says, the ships in seven fathoms of water. That's 42 feet. And knowing, uh, we also, by the way, in the book, we actually have a picture of the ship in Shelburne Harbor on this mission after it was rescued by the Americans there. And um, while they're trying to figure out what went wrong and how to fix it, they have two uh, minesweepers tied up to each side of it to help it hold station in that, right? Now, one of the things about 42 feet of water, some people said to me, well, why couldn't this be a Russian sub? In 42 feet of water, you could have reached over the side and probably knocked on the conning tower. True. You know, the other thing is that this mission was designed the, by 
Uh, he wasn't the captain there, but he did fly out to the mission to do what he called, get this, uh, a hot wash-up meeting with the Americans after it was over. And, um, and this was Admiral Kenneth Dyer. And for people who don't know him in naval lore, he was the admiral of the he was the rear admiral that was in charge of the Atlantic Fleet in '62 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is when uh, John Diefenbaker refused the Kennedys' request, you know, to have us help them with the blockade in, right. of Cuba by testing the North Atlantic. And he was the guy. It's famous here in the Halifax area, although it's often told in a more folksy way. Basically, he disobeyed the prime minister's direct orders, right, and took American orders and sent all the ships out and helped the Americans. And, um, you know, there are many books and articles online that have been written about this. You know, some think, describe it as a very heroic thing of a man who was unselfish and risked his own career to do the right thing as a NATO commander at the time. And there are others that say he circumvented democracy you know, by taking U.S. order, you know. Yes. Regardless of the interpretation, the point is this guy here would done what he, th- he, he thought is right. And, uh, you know, when I hear that he had designed this mission and flew out at the end of it initially, you know, the captain takes charge, which would have been, um, uh, God, I can't think of his name at the moment, so many of these, but, I was a- actually able to look at the actions during the Cuban Missile Crisis and the decisions. It was a very dramatic thing. And his, his World War II career in the book, and kind of forensically examined, I had to because, unfortunately, I never got to interview him face-to-face. It was only recently I realized he was the guy. He was the man, and this was the time frame, right? I would have loved to have talked to Dyer. But I did interview others that had knowledge of it, like including uh, Admiral Landymore, you know. But, um, man, you know, the thing is, yeah, I, I think we could look. And, you know, if nobody's interested in pulling up money or whatever, and I haven't gone begging yet or anything, I rarely have done that, um, it could be created, you know, we could simply track anything anybody finds and create a dive tourism area in Shelburne. Diving conditions are good there, unlike the outer part of Shag Harbor. You know, you don't have a lot of current. You don't have wicked tides like in the Bay of Fundy or the Gulf of Maine, you know. Um, There's a number of things. I would point out that, you know, we went looking, you know, where they claimed to find the artifact or people did kind of serendipitously and we knew where the spot was where Irvin Banks, the late Irvin Banks, the lightkeeper claimed to find the artifact that he turned over to U.S. Navy. Why did he do that? By the way, that was under Canadian Coast Guard orders. Uh, We do know that. And the thing is, when we went, uh, when people looked in the spot down in the kelp down in there, we found a, a disc, a geodesic Navy disc that was there. there. There should be two others. And on it, it had a code. And when I looked up the code, it says marks an object where ext- an object of extreme interest was found. We, wow. we only located that a few years ago. And you know something? There's an old APRO report that goes way beyond. There was... Uh, uh, produced for the Lorenzans at their, you know, Jim and the late James and yes. Coral Lorenzen at their request. They had a local investigator, uh, William F. Dawson, who was at the time head of the Astronomical Society here in Nova Scotia. And he did a great report. And when you read it, 
uh, the spokesman at Maritime Command tells him, and he puts everybody's name and service number and the phone number he called in this report for Lorenzens. And in it, he says, um, the spokesman tells him that if anything of extreme interest is found, it'll be turned over to Mr. Mace Coffey at the National Research Establishment on Grove Street in Dartmouth. Well, the divers, that's who they told me they turned the film over. They shot under the water. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And do you know who found that document? It wasn't me, Jan Aldrich in the States. Shag Harbor had just gotten known down there. I did my first talk there, and he sat in the audience and heard it. And he was going through the papers of the late John Brent Musgrave, and he found that April report, and he called me right away and sent it to me, right? And when I read that, I thought, well, I mean, because it backed up what the divers had said. I mean, who else would know those names, you know? I want to change topics here because we only got about 15 minutes left and so much yeah. more to cover with you. The Canadian Mint, the Royal Canadian Mint, oh. has mm-hmm. is now produced their sixth UFO coin that are that are in limited edition. This one coming out is about uh, the incident at a hospital on Vancouver Island in a town called Duncan where mm-hmm. these nurses witnessed a UFO hovering beside the window of the third floor of the hospital. And they saw the beings, the beings waved, and they waved back, and then the UFO shot off. And this mm-hmm. is a series of six that started a few years ago. Shag Harbor has a coin made out of it. Falcon Lake has a a, a coin made out of it. The, the Montreal Lights have a yes. coin made out of it, and there's a couple more. But the, here's the interesting part about the Royal Canadian Mint. The Minister of Finance has to sign off on all of these coins. And when they originally started with these coins a few years ago, they stated that this was about these coins were created as a part of Canadian heritage. Mm-hmm. When did UFOs become a part of Canadian heritage, man? Well, it depends on how you define that. But I can tell you, if you look at the... Um, um, What am I trying to think of here? The uh, in Ottawa, there when you go to there's there's a web page called the Search for the Unknown. That's uh, it's, it's part of of National Archives and uh, or well Library and Archives Canada. They have a page posted. And uh, I know they have, like, it covers a couple of UFO cases. And, for instance, on Shag Harbor, I'll I'll all be surprised when I read it that, you know, it says the case remains open and unsolved, you know, and things. And, you know, speaks rather well of it, right, on this site, right? But it lists cases like that. And, of course, Falcon Lake and a number of others that, um, you know, it's saying that it's part of the Canadian heritage, right? And... um, you know, it's it's not a big thing, or I don't know. I, I think sometimes the Mint, you know, I mean, printing and that and selling money is good business. They make money. You know, they, they mint 4,000 of them for each of those coins. For example, the UFO ones, uh, you know, it's a $20 face value. They sell them what? I think the Shag Harbor one went from the Mint for 130 They sell out right away. They tend to increase in value, um, you know, with the course Falcon Lake being the first, far ahead of the others. But, um, you know, I don't know. 
I, I think in a sense it's it's kind of a Canadian thing to do in the sense that, you know, I don't know, you can look at it like anything for a buck, but you can look at it and say we're more open-minded. Depends on how you feel about it. You can put a spin on. I, I don't put any great meaning or significance into it, but apparently the government's comfortable with it, I guess. I don't know, you know. Does it shock you? Does it make you scratch your head? Well, no, I, you know, in Shag Harbor early on when the, inc- when the incident society formed in the area to promote the case, you know, when the, the tourism aspect of it down there, I used to tell myself and the people that helped me, I said, you know, there will be T-shirts. There will be coffee mugs. It's inevitable, right? And I used to warn the society, and I still do, is what you want to do is those people will demand those things. They'll want them, and it's, it's fine. I think what you got to do is make sure that the myth, the myth and the, 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 the retailing that never becomes bigger than the case, you know, it shouldn't eclipse it. I I'm, I'm afraid to some degree that's what happened in Roswell and other cases, you know what I mean? But you know, you have to hold that back, but um, it's inevitable. You know, I mean, you know, there's, there's beer mugs with the Pope on it, right? Very true. Very you know, true. It's going to happen. Someone's going to do it, right? Yes. I, I think you have to hold it back. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. It wouldn't happen in the U.S. because, you know, anyway. Well, let's, we got 10 minutes left. I want to hit you up with another subject. Your opinion of conservative member of parliament Larry McGuire who's really taken on the UFO yeah. front the last couple of years. What's your opinion of Larry? Well, I don't know a whole lot about him. When I first read the letter, I went to, uh, you know, his cons- the uh, website for the constituency office, you know, in his bio and that. And, um, you know, I've heard it discussed on, you know, various U.S. platforms. You know, it sounds legit. I, I think his interest is, is legitimate and, and genuine and all that, right? Um, I thought the letter to Anita and Nan was was on point and skillful. The one concern I had, I think I mentioned to you during the break there, uh, Dave, was the uh, when I looked at the CC list at the bottom, because uh, it le- it it mentioned Major uh general right at the bottom and i think he was the seventh name in a list of uh ccs and the thing is with that is that he's in charge of jtfx amongst other things <clears throat> and that's a division of military intelligence in canada that kind of you know does most of its work i think would be overseas and to make sure things stay secure between us and the uh, five eye partners, you know, the Alliance as they call it, Mm -hmm. but they, they would have other duties and intervene. It's usually much more serious stuff, but I know that about 11 years ago, you know, the concerns that they would have domestically uh, about things like UFOs when it would come up or somebody getting into something they shouldn't or didn't have clearance, these things would be handled by the RCMP or CSIS and they were rare, but, since it got turned over to military intelligence, this would be handled by JTFX. And, you know, before I started looking into that and asking people, you know, 
And he said, well, that stuff's pretty rare. If it happens, they'd send a guy that's on desk duty, you know, in plain clothes. But, yeah, it's military intelligence now. It's not just security intelligence. So, uh, you know, that that's kind of interesting. Most people have heard of JTF2, you know, our, our, which has a great reputation in the world as special forces. Well, this is our special military intelligence group intelligence group jtfx and i first bumped into it i i think i told you on the mary simon uh website uh, her approval of a shoulder badge for them you know on there and when you look that up and read the history and the significance of why things are on the badge i found it quite interesting and i've heard stories like for example in halifax even that when the library moved from one side of the street to the other in a beautiful new building that some of the stuff in reference that had become sensitive since my work didn't make to the transfer. And uh, some of them there think that perhaps somebody had intervened and just absconded this stuff, you know. Do you think that Canada can get back to playing a role in world ufology the way we were prior to 1967? Yeah, I don't see why not, you know, because I, I think there's a greater opportunity here because, you know, my God, there's just, you know, though things are more open in the States, there's just so much going on and there's so much signal to noise, you know what I mean? I mean, where do you focus and how do you, you know, everybody looks one way and I don't know, yeah, I, I think, you know, we we can play that role. I, I think, you know, sometimes you got to look in that dark corner where nobody else is looking. I, I, I think the work I've done kind of highlights that, you know. I mean, if I hadn't gone into Shag Harbor, there'd be no Shag Harbor, there'd be no Shelburne, and a half a dozen other very significant cases I looked at. And, you know, if we had more time, <laughs> one of the things I, I realized one day when talking to Chris Rakowski and an assumption he made a heard in a show, it was quite cute, and I told him this recently, is that, you know, a lot of people say, well, what's your favorite case? It's got to be Shag Harbor. No. It's got to be Shelburne. No. That's not my favorite case. My favorite cases are the ones I found because of them that no one's heard of here in Nova Scotia. Why would I prefer them? Because when you hear them, they're amazing, and they actually give insight into how this phenomenon works. Plumbing, HVAC, and electrical contractors on Service Titan put up big numbers. How big? In their first two years on Service Titan, contractors typically see a 17% increase in revenue, a 9% increase in average ticket size, and a 10% increase in call booking rates. They also average a 4.7 out of 5 stars on customer review sites. Add it all up and the answer is clear. When solving for profitability, productivity, and growth, Service Titan is an essential part of the equation for contractors like you. Learn more today at servicetitan.com. That's servicetitan.com. Individual results may vary. With Sotic 2 for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, you could show off your skin again. And you know what that means. Beach day. As a Tick 2 inhibitor, Sotic 2 is the only once daily pill of its kind for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Ask your dermatologist about Sotic 2 today and learn more at SoClearlyYou.com. That's SoClearlyYou.com. 
Sotictu Ducravacitinib is a prescription treatment for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis who may benefit from systemic therapy or phototherapy. Don't take if you're allergic to Sotictu. Serious reactions can occur. Before treatment, get checked for infections, including tuberculosis. Sotictu can lower your ability to fight infections. Don't start if you have one. Serious infections, cancers including lymphoma, muscle problems, and changes in certain labs have occurred. Tell your doctor if you have a history of these events or if you have an infection or symptoms like fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, or if you have history of hepatitis B or C, liver or kidney problems, high triglycerides, or had a vaccine or plan to. So Tic2 inhibits Tic2, which is part of the Jack family. People 50 and older with heart disease risk factors who use a Jack inhibitor are at increased risk for certain side effects, sometimes fatal. It's unknown if So Tic2 has the same risks as Jack inhibitors. Call 1-888-SOTYKTU to learn more. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So where do you, what do you think Canada knows whether, you know, I know there's a bunch of alphabet agencies that have their own, um, yeah. their own foray into the field and their own files, but what do you think yeah. Canada really knows about UFOs? That That's tough to say because, you know, for ex- just to pick the example of Shelburne, for example, let's say, and I have no reason to doubt it looking at the other testimony and evidence that I've found, you know, that that's in that new book there. I just self-published through Amazon. When you look at that, let's say that film is was made, right, and shot that shows this proof, and it was turned over to where they say it was turned over on Grove Street in Dartmouth, that facility. What happened then? Because one of the things we know that I explained in the book is that they had a very unusual situation. By the way, some of this was set up by Vannevar Bush and Salant here in Canada, OM Salant. And what it was is when they first tried to put together a National Defense Research Board, they made all kinds of concessions. The Navy had already done this. The Navy had its own research board since 42, where they started during World War II. And when, when Salant and Vannevar Bush came to them and said, look, you know, we'd like Canada to get involved in this. Here's why. And to tell them, they're like, no, no, that's fine. Leave us out. And they had to make a bunch of concessions. And one of them was that they were pretty much autonomous when you look at what they'd signed off to in the end, right? One of the even stranger things about the facility in Dartmouth, by the way, for a long time, there was, I can't remember, 11 or 13 facilities across the country, like Valcartier, whatever, you know, the one in Atlantic Canada, and it says this now, even when you look it up on Wikipedia under Research Development Canada, whatever it's called there, is the the Dartmouth one is kind of unique because it lists as one of its missions, get this, knowledge management. I love the term, right? And believe me, they do. But you know, we don't know if somebody there, I, as I like to put it, pulled the Phil Corso and just threw the stuff in the in the drawer. Because all this work, when they were hauled in on UFOs, it was up to the bench scientists what they worked on. The managers did not assign the work. They just set policy for the thing. And that was one of the agreements to join. Unless the Navy said, look, we need you to work on this and need a new type of radar or we need you to develop a way to land a Sea King and a pitching deck like they did with the development of that winch system, you know, they called the bear trap. Mm-hmm. As long as they didn't have that, they were allowed to work on whatever they want. They set their own thing. But there was no oversight. 
if one of them said, you know what, nobody sees the swim and threw it in the drawer and he died and nobody replaced him, who knows where that is, right? It may not have been as sinister as taken by Canadian military intelligence, although it might. He may have simply, as I put it, pulled the Phil Corso, but didn't stick around to hand it out, you know? In fact, one of the ones they handed it to died very young of a first and last heart attack in the Philippines in the 70s. I explained, which was Mace Coffee, a very mysterious. Look, when I first tracked, remember I told you about the uh, APRO document that yes. was found by, that's the first mention to him. I, nobody had heard of this guy. And, you know, when I first found him, I went and looked him up in an old phone book and there was a listed number. And when I called him in the early 90s, it was still good. He didn't answer. He was dead. So a woman answered, get this, it's all explained in my book. And um, I said, hello, is Dr. Coffey there? And she said, who is this? I said, I'm looking for Maurice Coffey, was known as Mace, I hopefully. And she says, I'm sorry, but uh, he died, uh, you know, back in the 70s. I said, oh, I'm sorry, it's okay, she said. You know, it was a long time ago. And I said, so you must be Sylvia. And the girl, boy said, no, that's my mother. She died three days ago. And I was so sorry. Well, what can you do, right? And I said, well, look, I'll let you go. And she said, well, what's it about? And I started talking about Shag Harbor and Shelburne, right? She said, it's very interesting. She says, well, call back. You know, we'll be done all the arrangements in about a week. I said, one question before I let you go. What did your dad do for the Navy? She said he was a parapsychologist. Weird. Who knew? Who knew? We have 45 seconds with you tonight, Chris. And I want to say a big thank you for coming on Spaced Out Radio for the first time tonight. Uh, do, me a do me a favor. Tell everybody where they can find your books. Amazon.com in Halifax at select bookstores. But Amazon, they've been it's been moving good. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's an eye-opener. Uh, it's a book I never thought I was going to get to write. I, I co-wrote the others. And, uh, by the way, the last thing I'll let you know is what I found is that there's going to be more. There was an incident down there in the same spot three weeks earlier. That's why they went there instead of somewhere else. Had several destroyer escorts. I'm now awaiting. So there could be a volume two someday, but I got a book to write in between. Wow. Keep looking up. Take your hands out of your pocket. You know, too many Nova Scotians look at the ground walking around. Same here in British Columbia. Chris Stiles, everybody. Coming up next, Steve Stockton from Among the Missing. Then little Timmy Senor with the UFO report. Lou Elizondo speaks on Twitter again on Spaced Out Radio. Great show, my man. Great show. Well, thank you. It was fun. It's very late. I had a long day. I was up at 5 a.m. and almost 24 hours now soon. So, but and it was great. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate you, man. I, I guess Steve McLean has been bugging you. Is that how you? He's not me. Steve McLean. Oh, Steve McLean. Oh, I don't know. I guess he's been writing in, or you know, he writes into these. He's one of these super fans that follows me around. You know. But, no, no. You know. Uh, one of my one of my bookers is Canadian, so I know he ah, loves well, this there topic. You go. Yeah. All right, Chris. Anyway, it was great. Thank you so much, Dave. Take care. All right, have fun. Good night. Chris Stiles, everybody. All right, I'm going to disappear for a minute, and I will be right back. Right back. Right back.
right. I am back. Little Timmy Senors hanging on out. Fresh off of vacay. <coughs> and uh, Cowboys Five Rings, how you doing? They're being prepared, Random Gee. They're being prepared. <laughs> I already thought about that. Thank you tonight to Kevin Lavira with a hat trick, natural hat trick of Super Chats and W. David Page. Thank you for the love, everybody. Appreciate the love. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Thanks, my brother Eugene. We love you, man. Eugene Braxton, one of the best dudes ever. Here we go. Would you like to connect with us? Head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info. Now, back to Dave Scott and SOR. Here we go with the third and final hour of Spaced Out Radio tonight. My name is Dave Scott. Very much appreciate all of you tuning us on in. Very much appreciate you. Thank you to everyone listening in on our terrestrial affiliates around North America, digitally on Odyssey Radio, Talk Stream Live, at KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do me the favor, hit that subscribe button. The Desert Clam has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. What do you got for us, Clam? The Cryops. The Cryops is your password. Use it wisely, Space Travelers, as the Clam sets the password each and every night right here on Spaced Out Radio. Our website, spacedoutradio.com, we have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the news wire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and you can join the Space Travelers Club on Patreon. Here we go with hour number three. Steve Stockton from the YouTube channel Among the Missing joins us with another creepy story. Hello friends, welcome to Among the Missing YouTube channel on Spaced Out Radio. I'm Steve Stockton, and I'm about to take you on an unbelievable journey of people just like you. Their stories and encounters will haunt us on Among the Missing. The Alaska Triangle is a vast expanse of rugged terrain located in the southern Alaskan wilderness. This area has been the site of numerous mysterious disappearances that remain unexplained. The region comprises rough, icy mountains and tundras with a significant portion yet to be explored. The Triangle's boundaries are typically considered the space between Anchorage, Juneau, and Barrow. The strange vanishings in this area have perplexed investigators and given rise to various theories about what could happen in the Alaska Triangle. The Alaska Triangle has a lengthy history dating back to the early days of Alaska's settlement. The local Native Americans believed that the area was cursed and that anyone who entered it would never return. 
However, in the 20th century, the enigmatic disappearances that made the Alaska Triangle famous started occurring. During its flights from Anchorage to Montana in the Alaska Triangle on January 26, 1950, a military transport plane carrying 44 passengers disappeared without a trace. Despite an extensive search, no wreckage of the Douglas C-54 Skymaster or any bodies were found. David Downing, the leader of the Yukon Civil Air Search and Rescue Association, stated that whatever happened to them must have occurred rapidly as there was no indication of engine trouble or any communication. Since then, many people have gone missing in the Alaska Triangle without explanation. On October 16, 1972, two influential political figures, U.S. House Majority Leader Hale Boggs and Alaska Representative Nick Begich, disappeared in a small plane while flying over the area. The aircraft and its occupants were never located, despite a massive search effort. All were later declared deceased. Numerous unexplained disappearances in the Alaska Triangle have led to various theories about what could have caused them. Some people think a powerful magnetic force in the area could be responsible for planes and ships going off course. Others suggest the possibility of extraterrestrial entities or the spirits of the native Alaskans who once lived there. According to local legends, a Sasquatch creature also terrorizes towns. One example is Portlock, a settlement on the southern edge of the Kenai Peninsula that was abandoned in the 1950 after villagers were reportedly attacked and killed by an unknown creature they called the Nantanak. Not only are there supernatural theories, but there are also logical explanations for the disappearances in the Alaska Triangle. The region is infamous for its harsh weather conditions and challenging terrain, which can cause significant obstacles for search and rescue teams. Furthermore, the expansive wilderness can cause people to become lost and confused, mainly if they are unfamiliar with the area. The enigma of the Alaska Triangle and the cause of the disappearances in the region remains a mystery. While some theories may seem implausible, it is evident that something peculiar is happening there. We may never know whether it's due to supernatural forces or the harsh wilderness of Alaska. And thank you to Steve Stockton from Among the Missing for another great spooky story here on Spaced Out Radio. Steve kicks off hour number three of this show Monday through Friday night with... A creepy tale from Among the Missing, which you can find on YouTube for free. So make sure if you head to his channel, you go hit that subscribe button. From the missing to the mysterious, it is that time of the night where we say hello to little Timmy Senor and the UFO Report. Nobody's going to know. They're going to know. Good to have you back from a short little vacation that you took with the wife this week. But uh, little Timmy Senor, we love it when you're on the UFO report, even though you don't have Terry Hall's beautiful mustache. That's right. No one has those. He's got a handlebar. You can swing from those babies. Forget about it. You're absolutely right. But yeah, I appreciate that. We had a really nice time. Spent our days... um, water slides it was a water park that we stayed at so we were sliding all day beautiful it was a big old family fun adventure so beautiful that is absolutely wonderful good for you guys every now and again you have to 
take that time. A big shout out in, the, in our chat room on YouTube tonight to the legend himself, Jim Goodall, hanging out with us tonight. Oh, we love Jim Goodall around here. Love Jim Goodall. One of the greatest. One of the greatest ever on this show. So thank you, Jim, for tuning us in. Tim, you know, we always seem to wait and see what Lou Elizondo is going to say about something, anything, nothing. And the only way he really communicates with the public these days is through X. And so on X today, he sent out a tweet. Howdy, folks. Just a quick update for you to consider. Please know that ongoing efforts are underway that will reveal themselves by early to mid-2024. At the risk of haters trying to sabotage our efforts, I can't be precise at this time. But if you have learned anything over the last five years, I never make empty promises. Trust me, this will be worth it. Special thanks to at Chris Mellon and at Jay Stratton. What do you think about this tweet? Kind of out of left field, don't you think? Yeah, a little bit. Um, and, you know, uh, sort of cryptic, of course, as always. But um, I think, you know, he's just trying to let us all know that he's still out there doing his thing and that, you know, we shouldn't forget about him. He's working. And who knows? Maybe he will run for Congress in 2024. <laughs> who knows, RG? Uh, that would be interesting to see. Um, but either way, um, I think it's good that he's um, interacting with the public. You know, I think that he's become kind of a figurehead. People like to hear from him. So anytime he has something to say, we like to address it. Yeah, I, I thought it was quite cryptic as well, you know. And and the one thing that Elizondo has done is is his timelines are usually extremely long and extremely vague. Okay. And I'm saying this as a fan of his, I know he's got a lot of people out there in the UFO world and in the governmental world who really don't want to hear him talk anymore. They're done with him, but I think he is still in the know. I think he is someone who, you know, has afforded himself. Plumbing, HVAC, and electrical contractors on Service Titan put up big numbers. How big? In their first two years on Service Titan, contractors typically see a 17% increase in revenue, a 9% increase in average ticket size, and a 10% increase in call booking rates. They also average a 4.7 out of 5 stars on customer review sites. Add it all up and the answer is clear. When solving for profitability, productivity, and growth, Service Titan is an essential part of the equation for contractors like you. Learn more today at servicetitan.com. That's servicetitan.com. Individual results may vary. With Sotic 2 for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, you could show off your skin again. And you know what that means. Beach day. As a Tick 2 inhibitor, Sotic 2 is the only once daily pill of its kind for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Ask your dermatologist about Sotic 2 today and learn more at SoClearlyYou.com. That's SoClearlyYou.com. Sotic 2 decravacitinib is a prescription treatment for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis who may benefit from systemic therapy or phototherapy. Don't take if you're allergic to Sotic 2. Serious reactions can occur. Before treatment, get checked for infections, including tuberculosis. Sotic 2 can lower your ability to fight infections. Don't start if you have one. Serious infections, cancers including lymphoma, muscle problems, and changes in certain labs have occurred. Tell your doctor if you have a history of these events, or if you have an infection or symptoms like fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, or if you have history of hepatitis 
hepatitis B or C, liver or kidney problems, high triglycerides, or had a vaccine or plan to. So Tick 2 inhibits Tick 2, which is part of the Jack family. People 50 and older with heart disease risk factors who use a Jack inhibitor are at increased risk for certain side effects, sometimes fatal. It's unknown if So Tick 2 has the same risks as Jack inhibitors. Call 1-888-SOTYKTU to learn more. Enough time and measurement to to come through in the clutches when we need to. And I'm really hoping that this may spark something. I mean, look, with all the crap going on in the world right now, UFOs are on the back bench for a lot of it. Okay, it's not even a thought for a lot of people right now, considering, you know, at any time this could get real ugly in the Middle East. I mean, we think it's ugly now, but there is potential of it getting really, really ugly. And let's hope that that doesn't happen. But I could see where UFOs and the UFO story has been pushed back to 2024 to see when things calm down. And if I am correct, and pardon my ignorance for not understanding the full extent of American politics, but next year there is a number of elections. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We've got some big elections coming up and the presidential, you know, debate is in full swing. And so we're starting to see, uh, you know, changes coming on the horizon potentially. And so, you know, this topic is definitely not on everyone's lips right now. You know, and Congress decided to take a hiatus and, um, you know, instead of addressing some of the topics that are crucial, they took a vacation. And so when they came back, there may not be the same amount of wind in those sails, but I can tell you that the people that are still working for what we're calling disclosure didn't take any breaks. And so this topic has moved forward and we're starting to see that coming forward just in the headlines. The fact that UFOs have gone nowhere as far as this goes in the media I think that speaks volumes. And the fact is everything seems to somehow be linked back to this question and how it's going to be handled. We know the rest of the world is kind of poised and waiting to see how the United States handles it. So it'll be interesting to see in the new election how our new uh, government potentially handles it, because that's really what it will have to be. Um, Even if we keep the same president, we'd have to see this addressed a little bit differently because we know that in 30 days he's going to be addressing this topic himself well i mean there is a good point too i mean there have been a lot of rumors that elizondo may run for congress in wyoming indeed where where that's his home i mean what do you think do you think there is an opportunity where maybe that's what he's waiting for It wouldn't surprise me, and it may be around the same time as the release of his book because we know that he was poised to release in September, and we didn't see that. So perhaps he is announcing some sort of news around the same time as his book release. Um, Who knows? But at this point, it wouldn't be that far from the mark uh, as far as what we've seen in the past Um, We know that people that are really platforming something tend to get deeply involved in the government at some point. And this would be the natural progression of things for his career on this topic. 
he's got a lot of pull and he has a lot of support. And I could definitely see a seat in Congress in his future. Well, it's very interesting. And that's something we're going to have to keep an eye on. Tim, let's move on to your main topics of the night. And let's go right to it, man. NASA astronaut lived with the UFO secret. Oh, my. Obviously, Bill Nelson never got the memo on this one. Oh, I was wondering if you'd pick this story first. Of course I would. Pull out my NASA hat and put that one on. Yeah, the NASA astronaut Gordon Cooper claimed that the U.S. government knew about UFOs and was covering up its alien knowledge for decades, right up until his death. And so he was the youngest member of Project Mercury and the first human spaceflight program which achieved its goal of putting a man into Earth orbit and returning him safely. And so you and I have talked plenty about astronauts and their claims of UFOs on this show, Dave, and the fact that NASA has never really spoken out and supported their claims. And so now following his NASA career, the aerospace engineer and test pilot made it his mission to expose the government's knowledge about extraterrestrial life. And in a quote, he said, I keep hearing these stories from credible sources inside the government, and they just won't go away. And he told this to the Washington Post in 1978. Continuing his quote, he said, I can't tell you the names of these sources, but they're credible. And frankly, I think the government should release the information these sources have, no matter what the White House thinks. Now, Dave... The reason I selected this story and these quotes is directly because we're seeing this right now in the headlines. These claims are the same claims that are being made by David Grush. And so the fact is we're seeing a repeat of the same word-for-word sentences coming forward from, I would have to say, a very credible source in this astronaut. Now, he appeared on the Merv Griffin show in the same year, 1978, and discovered, I'm sorry, and discussed a story that the government was, quote, able to keep one alive, presuming an ET. Now, the astronaut could have been talking about J-Rod, a well-known conspiracy about an alien who supposedly survived a UFO crash and worked at Area 51. Now, the speaking at a United Nations panel in 1985, Cooper claimed that he was sworn to secrecy while working for NASA and quoted, for many years, I've lived with a secret and in a secrecy imposed on all specialists and all astronauts. And he said, I can now reveal that every day in the USA, our radar instruments capture objects and form and composition unknown to us. Continue on, the astronaut believed that the extraterrestrial vehicles and their crews were visiting this planet from other planets and said that they must must have more technically advanced technology than Earth and suggested a coordinated program to scientifically collect and analyze data. Getting pretty deep. Right. And we know that Gordon spoke out pretty often about this and wrote books 
And Dave, you and I have talked about this plenty. Now, we're drawing a kind of comparison here to what we're seeing taking place with whistleblowers right now. Now, why wasn't this addressed back in 1978 properly when Gordon Cooper initially had these recollections? And again, when in 1985, he brought it to the United Nations. How is this continually swept to one side? Seems like there's always a bigger topic to talk about. And, and let What's me, going on? Let me just say this. This is why the public who listens to this show and anybody in ufology should absolutely chastise NASA for that bogus report that they put out, and they should chastise and point the finger at groups like the Scientific Coalition of UAP Studies for backing that useless report. When here we have another astronaut who has been vocal over the decades about UFOs and aliens, and nobody's talking about them. Nobody is talking about it. Nobody's reported on it. Bill Nelson knows Gordon Cooper. Bill Nelson, the head of NASA. They've known each other a long, long time. And for Bill Nelson to play stupid on this, it's unconscionable. He should be fired. He should be fired. His executive board should be fired. And that that useless study for a hundred grand, they should have to pay that back. Each and every one of those idiots who took that poll should take that have to give that money back, give it to charity. Yeah. Okay. Well it's it's garbage. Yeah. It's garbage. And consider also that, you know, Gordy was taking the same risks that David Grush is taking today. He was taking those same risks back then, and maybe even more so because nobody even asked him for this. He came forward with it and decided that he was going to project this into the public. So I find this comparison similar because out of nowhere, we got David Grush with a pretty good support team putting out some information that kind of mirrors or if not completely duplicates the same information that Gordon Cooper was putting out in 1978 and then again to the world in 1985. I agree with you, my friend. I agree with you wholly. Okay. It is, it is a slap in the face. What NASA has pulled since they decided to get into the UFO game. All right. Whether there's, they're being pulled by puppet strings or whether this is the doing of Bill Nelson, the executive director, or whoever it may be, the fact that they are lauding themselves as successes for their latest UFO report, it doesn't make sense. Anybody, right. a grade three student, okay, could literally look at this study and say that it was trash. You don't have to look that hard. I mean, we talk about Darcy Weir's documentaries about Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo and the UFO encounters that they had. Let's talk about Gordon Cooper's sightings. Let's talk about what he knows. Why would he lie about it? And don't give me the, the health concerns or age or whatever, because this isn't new. This isn't a new topic for him. He's been talking about it since the 70s. And to be ignored 
I don't get it. I don't get it, Tim. And this is where yeah. the if 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 the mainstream media had any inkling of how to cover the UFO story, this is a big one. This is a big one that should be covered when an astronaut is going against the grain and basically saying, screw you, NASA, you're lying to our faces. You're lying to the American public. You're lying to the world public about what you know. And you got egg on your face. Yeah. And I mean, just slightly in their defense, NASA even bringing up UFO, I think, was new. Now we know it was completely motivated by Arrow and their need for confirmation that it's not real. We know that. We know that that's what this report is all about. It had nothing to do with NASA. It was just NASA putting their stamp of approval of saying pass. Right? So that's unfortunate because they designed something to fail. Now, if they were really wanting to look at it, they should have shown us one example of UFO or what they're calling UAP and be like, here's what we don't know. They weren't even able to siphon that. So... You know, I'm not too impressed if they weren't even able to show me one example of what they were studying. Right? That's pretty frustrating right off the bat. So, um, you know, maybe that's happening. Maybe it's not. um, But we'll never know publicly, at least. Um, But Dave, uh, for me, NASA just discussing UFO was refreshing. Uh, Well, of course. You and I are at odds on that. Because obviously it was designed to fail. But... You know, it's still a topic that I feel that NASA needs to be honest about, but also needs to be on the forefront in representing the United States. On like, if anyone knows, it should be NASA. Tim, I need them to Tim, take over ask, control, but with real data. Let me ask that you: this be real data. They've had real data for years, Tim. I mean, you take True. your. I know you take your battery-operated Toyota Prius down to the to veganville okay i know you do that all right you go sit with bill nelson and go have a coffee chai tea latte and talk about ev vehicles the ufo report continues with little timmy cedar right after this i don't like ev vehicles what can i say To have it, Timmy. You are on fire tonight. I love it. I was hoping. I, really, to, really, I was really it. hoping to drop a Toyota Prius on you tonight. I really was. Who drives the? I I drive a gas guzzler. You know this. Mm. I I drive a suburban, the Chevy heavy duty suburban. <laughs> oh jeez, I should be ashamed of myself too. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. <laughs> vegan. Um, I did try some vegan food not too long ago. What did I say, people? I'm, what did I just say? I could never do it all the time. I can, you know. I also it, don't get me started. The things I do to, yeah, stay alive. Crazy. Did you take in a Portland Timbers game too? No, but I might. My son oh, wants to start go. going to to sports. Live sports games, so yeah. Take him to watch the Winter Hawks. Yeah, he wants to see hockey. Yeah. Pete Leibel, how you doing, man? 
right on Jim Goodall if you're in the in the crowd. It's we miss you, buddy. He'll Gosh, be in Reno. Been too long. He'll oh, be I in hope Reno. So I can't wait to see him again. <clears throat> we can swap some stories. Yep, you can tell him about all your your uh, travel distance between battery charges. You know, oh, God. I would never get a battery-operated vehicle. It's not there yet. The technology is not there. You are really just... Hey, you've been waiting for a couple of days. <laughs> this is what I get for going on vacation, you guys. Never take a break from Dave's show. If you work for Dave, never take a vacation because the harassment when you come back is <laughs> unbelievable. Workplace harassment. Oh, my oh, goodness. No. The only, hold on, 405-er, welcome back. The only right-wing duck fan. <laughs> what the hell is a duck? Oh, he's an Oregon duck. <laughs> the mighty, yeah, Oregon ducks. That's a. Oh. I saw Rush, Rush play at that stadium, actually. Rush is Canadian. Yes, they are. I am 72 hours away from Guns N' Roses. Oh, no way. Lucky, lucky oh. guy. I was trying to tell RG that it'd be fun to see you two play at the Sphere before they leave. Did I just give you an idea? Just I got to find, find my passport. I still can't you do find need it. to find your passport. I still can't find it. <clears throat> it's... Probably right where you left it in the secret pocket in your travel I bag. Have tr dude, I have checked my travel bags over and over again. Weird. I just. Weird. Well, somebody is definitely like posing as you. And well, traveling the, that's the, world. the thing. My credit hasn't been hit or none of my credit has been. That, that's why I think yeah, it, it's in my house somewhere. It's right. been sold. It's like in Zimbabwe right now. Oh, it could be. Someone is posing as be. you opening a bank account. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all happening. This guy. Yep. I can't wait to rock with my son. That's going to be so much fun, you lucky, oh, yeah. lucky dude. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and Allison Chains is opening up for him. That's I, cool. I saw night number one of this tour in Las Vegas back in April, on April 8th of 2016. And they're still going. They're still going. They're still They're really going. milking it. I don't care. No new albums. They're just permanently on tour. Oh, they got some it. new songs out, though. Okay. They got some new songs. So but they have to play the classics of the ways they're going to get booed right off the stage. They're well, still like screaming for the classics. And they're like, that was the 80s. Well, they're like, but it's that's why you're here. <laughs> I, I wish Slash could play the guitar for some of the songs on Chinese Democracy. But he, it, How it's many cortisone shots do you think that dude gets in his wrists and hands? Oh, really? Eh? Think about it. That's heavy. Purple Tunnel for guitarists is a big deal. Oh, yeah. But I look forward to seeing Alice in Chains again. You know, um, they opened for GNR on the first night of this tour in Vegas, and it was amazing. And I can't wait to uh, to see them again. 
you guys are a dying breed, you GNR fans. Literally, oh. I think that that's <laughs> dying breed. Hey, it's, hey, how about back to back concerts for my son? Iron Maiden and Guns N' Roses. That's power right there. Power. Is, that's going to be fun. I mean, here, any here we go, Tim. Fun. Here we go. All right. continue on with the ufo report tim senor is here we welcome you all back for our final break of the night my name is dave scott your host of the most tinfoil and wooness that you can find anywhere on this planet reminder to all of you that if you miss most of this show or others check out our free archives they're always free they're always going to be free at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio do me the favor, hit that subscribe button. We're on every major podcast network like Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Google Play, and everything in between. Our website, spacedoutradio.com, we have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the newswire, check out our swag, follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and you can join us in the Space Travelers Club on Patreon. Tim Senor, little Timmy Senor, the Timbit, Tim A, whatever you want to call him, he is back from vacation. And we're going to get right into the UFO report after getting a little heated last half hour talking about NASA again. Looks like Avi Loeb has made the news again, planning another expedition looking for more meteors, Tim. Yeah, he's going to strike out on a second mission, even though... The results from his first mission may have resulted in those... Plumbing, HVAC, and electrical contractors on Service Titan put up big numbers. How big? In their first two years on Service Titan, contractors typically see a 17% increase in revenue, a 9% increase in average ticket size, and a 10% increase in call booking rates. They also average a 4.7 out of 5 stars on customer review sites. Add it all up and the answer is clear. When solving for profitability, productivity, and growth, Service Titan is an essential part of the equation for contractors like you. Learn more today at servicetitan.com. That's servicetitan.com. Individual results may with Sotictu for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, you could show off your skin again. And you know what that means. Beach day. As a Tic2 inhibitor, Sotic2 is the only once daily pill of its kind for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Ask your dermatologist about Sotic2 today and learn more at SoClearlyYou.com. That's SoClearlyYou.com. Sotic2, Decravacitinib, is a prescription treatment for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis who may benefit from systemic therapy or phototherapy. Don't take if you're allergic to Sotic2. Serious reactions can occur. Before treatment, get checked for infections, including tuberculosis. Sotic2 can lower your ability to fight infections. Don't start if you have one. Serious infections, cancers including lymphoma, muscle problems, and changes in certain labs have occurred. Tell your doctor if you have a history of these events, or if you have an infection or symptoms like fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, or if you have history of hepatitis B or C, liver or kidney problems, high triglycerides, or had a vaccine or plan to. So Tick 2 inhibits Tick 2, which is part of the Jack family. People 50 and older with heart disease risk factors who use a Jack inhibitor are at increased risk for certain side effects, sometimes fatal. It's unknown if So Tick 2 has the same risks as Jack inhibitors. Call 1-888-SOTYKTU to learn more. Microspherules 
have panning out to be something that was mundane. And so let's see if I can get this to come up here. My reader, I apologize. So that's right. Um, Avi Loeb claimed to have found the first proof of extraterrestrial life in the Pacific Ocean, and he's doing another expedition. He wants to go out and find a bigger portion of the much-talked-about IM1 meteor to learn more about it. And so new information has been revealed by scientists regarding the metal shards that crashed into the Pacific in 2014, which allegedly originated outside our solar system. Well, the researchers discovered that about 700 tiny metallic spheres, which they were scouring the bottom off the coast of New Guinea in June, of these 57 were studied and found to have compositions that are not typical of the solar system. Now, according to this article, the characteristics emerged after the Earth-like planet veered off from a dwarf star's orbit and sending a stream of debris into interstellar space. And so, according to Loeb, during this occurrence, the crust of a rocky planet would melt, resulting in an abundance of beryllium, lithanium, and uranium. And these were all discovered in the metallic spheres which were dredged up from the ocean's depths. So, new research is suggesting a natural origin and the composition of the meteor can naturally be explained, although Loeb hypothesized that numerous uncommon elements might have a technical function. And so we can, of course, say that uranium might have served as fuel in a fission reactor, and that the lithanium could have been melted in semiconductors. Now, Loeb revealed that he and his colleagues plan another expedition to learn more about the nature of the I-1 meteor, but they find large pieces, and hopefully next time they go, they will. In the next few months, they're going to be going back out there now. This new analysis may kind of lead to this being mundane, but either way, it does seem like there's some interesting components to this. Now, Dave, there's other meteors in the headlines, and I don't want to skip ahead or anything, but in this one analysis, before we move off of obvious spherules, one analysis is saying that it could potentially be a failed project origin type interstellar probe that was sent to investigate Earth. That's one theory. And a research article has been put forward from the International Journal of Innovation, Scientific Research and Review that supports that and puts that hypothesis into paper form. Um, and also, we know that NASA's Bennu asteroid sample came back, and that contained carbon and water, which, as we know, are the building blocks of life. So, Dave, information, talk. <laughs> I don't know what you want me to say on this. I mean, Avi Loeb is a brilliant man, Okay, you don't get to be the head astrophysicist at Harvard by hosting a podcast about aliens. That's for sure. Okay, you know, I mean, I understand that he is trying to find earthly values and earthly symptoms for anything that could plausibly, plausibly be extraterrestrial in origin. I get that. I understand it. Is that where the money should be going, though? That's that's what I question. 
Okay, is he going to get his Nobel Prize by looking up meteors for compounds and and minerals that we already know are out there? How does that help move the ball forward when it comes to the study of UFOs, which was his original plan for the Galileo Project, to try and find life out there in the stars? Maybe not aliens, but some sort of signal. Some some sort of, of clue that could point us in the direction that we are not alone in the universe. And I just don't understand where this is going. Like, to me, uh, maybe I'm too narrow-minded, but I don't understand the concept. How about you? I am too confused, as I was initially when he decided to go on this excursion to Papua New Guinea. Um, first of all, his retrieval method is to drop something heavy, that's a magnet, and scour and comb the ocean floor, which is, I'm sorry, I'm a surfer and a, a protector of the ocean, and that is damaging. I don't really, I'm not excited about that. If he was to go and look and get eyes on it, that would be much more my preference. But this is all in, you know, the name of science, and so so he is getting some results, and I support that, that he's looking to get results for interstellar material. But this is not a discussion about that. I thought that he had built some technology to look into the skies into multiple spectrums at the same time and a tracking system to view and decipher UAP. That was the initial Galileo project that I was aware of. And in fact, I got details on and tried to duplicate some of the technology into my program. So I haven't heard any results from that, um, which is disheartening because that was the part of the Galileo project that I was initially interested in. So I don't know how he was distracted from that portion of his initial project but um, it may be a budgetary thing. You know, he may have gotten a lump sum of money in some way and needs to explain it as uh, we did this excursion. But, you know, who knows? We, d- we don't know his motivations because that's not part of what he puts on Medium, where he usually talks about uh, his hypotheses and some of what his work is. But um, at this point, uh, yeah. I'm still waiting to hear that portion of his work. Um, Yeah, Dave, I'm not super excited about looking for interstellar meteors. I don't feel like that is um, part of the discussion. I do understand the science behind it, that he's looking for some materials that they can study to prove that it's possible. But um, I would be much more interested in seeing what's flying in our skies right now. Me too. Me too. And I, I'm kind of excited about this next story you got for us tonight in cool. re, in regards to, you know, science. But we don't know if we can time travel. And yet this story maybe has simulated time travel backwards. This is exciting. I agree. I agree. And this opened up quite a few um, questions that came to me from some of the people that I work around because this was discussed today. So a new article from The Debrief is talking about how scientists trying to take advantage of the unusual properties of the quantum realm say that they have successfully simulated 
a method of backward time travel that allows them to change an event after the fact. And so they've managed to do it one out of four times successfully. And so with this 25% success rate, it's an interesting new program coming from the Cambridge University team. And now they are quick to caution here that they have not built a time machine per se, but also note how their process doesn't violate physics while changing past events after they've happened. So in a quote, they say, imagine that you want to send a gift to someone. You need it to uh, arrive one day and you make sure that it arrives on day three. So I'll repeat that. Imagine that you want to send a gift to someone. You need to send it on day one to make sure that it arrives on day three. And so, however, you have to receive that person's wish list on day two. And so somewhere you have to send it on day one and change whatever it is to what it should be for it to arrive successfully as it should be on day three. And so what they're saying is that to respect the gifts recipient's timeline, you would need to send it on day one, but you won't know what gift to send until later, meaning your gift will either be late or wrong. So now imagine you can change what you send on day one with the information from the wish list received on day two. It's exactly this phenomenon that the researchers say can happen in the right scenario. And so the simulation uses quantum entanglement and manipulation to show how you could retroactively change your previous actions to ensure the final outcome is the one you want. And obviously, quantum entanglement is the process where certain fundamental aspects of quantum particles are shared by two or more particles, and changing those properties in any single particle, excuse me, causes the same change in the others. So it's simultaneous. I, I it's see really where you're interesting. Going with this. It, it is yeah. it, it is incredibly interesting. Scary yeah. too. I mean, this is the type of stuff where you look at the at the Back to the Future movies and you think of a country like China or Iran or whoever, North Korea being like Biff Tannen. Okay, and getting their hands a hold of this type of technology. What the hell do they do to go back in time if they can if they can figure it out to go back in time and absolutely change the entire course of this planet? That's scary, man. It is eerily scary. I mean, I do believe let me rephrase. I want to believe that currently right now on our timeline, there are time travelers here. Okay, that's that's my my sci-fi woo side of me, that I want to believe that they're here. Okay, but I, I think, you know, much like a lot of movies in the past, man, you know, whether it's Terminator, 
with AI intelligence. I mean, look how that's becoming a reality. Look at Flight of the Navigator from Disney in 86, where people are talking about what it's like to fly UFOs through consciousness. Nobody was talking that in 86. Okay? You look at other movies that seem to be extremely predictable about what's going on here. Back to the Future, that could be one. It it may not be exact, but it's a great metaphor for what could happen if you change the space-time continuum. You know, the butterfly effect. I mean, I don't know if this is something we should be messing with. I really don't. You know, I mean, people could say, well, we're kind of messing with things now. Look at look at uh, Elon Musk and and his, you know, company where they want to they want to, you know, put AI technology in your brain. Okay? I think that has some good to it. It has merit to it. For instance, if it could help cure somebody of Alzheimer's or dementia or help somebody who's paralyzed walk again or use their body again. I think that's that's a fantastic move forward. But we know, Tim, the way humanity has acted over the last couple thousand years, that before anything comes out to actually benefit humanity, it's got to go through the war room first. Indeed. Indeed. And I would, of course, if you were to ask me the question, if this was possible, I see a lot of potential for good in the right hands, you know, being able to disarm a launched missile or being able to undo an oil spill or undo some kind of natural disaster or something like that, or remove people from a building that's about to crumble. Things like that, that, you know, are a little more instantaneous because in this theory, it would be something that would only perhaps give you a small window, you know, back in time. So uh, I imagine good potentially in the right hands. Of course, this could be used for self-preservation and lots of, you know, self-benefit for the wrong hands. But in the right hands, you could do some amazing good. You could heal the planet. So, you know, I like to think of the benefits of something like this. Um, and it's incredible. And here's the other thing. If it has been perfected at any point in our timeline, then here we are experiencing it and it's happening right now. And there are time travelers, you know, and that's just the fact. And the fact is, is they're putting it together now and making it happen. It shouldn't be a surprise. Well, there there was also a story that came out, which is something, you know, similar to this, where they're talking that within the next 10 years, we can, we should be able to expand human life by decades. And that's within 10 years from now. And I'll tell you, oh, you got the same message I did from a uh, random guy. I thought it was on mute. Yeah. Well, that let, guy. let's see. Let's see what he has. <laughs> it's got to be something charming. It could be anything when it comes to him. It could be. I don't know. Hmm. I got somebody uh, pregnant in mine. <laughs> I'm not looking. I'm not going to look until after the show. I'm, going to, I'm just going. Well, to... apparently, <clears throat> apparently, the reason why he sent this is <laughs> there was something suspicious seen flying over Dallas or in Hazlitt, Texas, uh, just a little while ago. And 
Okay, I've got the video up here on on Twitter. Excellent, excellent. On Twitter, just let me discuss. Take a quick look here. Hold on. RG. That's why we call him the random guy right here. All right, let's bring this. Let's bring this up for our uh, our YouTube and Twitch audience to see this. It's great radio, y'all. So what we're what we're looking at here, what we're looking at here is a um, is this it, to me it almost looks like a meteor going through the sky it's like a cloudy orb just kind of floating through the sky it is so weird like some people are paying attention it turns from a real bright orb splits into a triangle and then the two f- lights disappear very strange very, very strange. I don't even know how how to explain. It this. looks like there's almost a ring blasting off in front of it. Did you see that? A yeah. sonic boom, but a visual one. Yeah. Let's. Uh, very interesting. Yeah. Weird. Very, very weird. But. A second stage separation from a rocket. He was about to say. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I when I was a kid, I saw a Chinese rocket misfire over the Great Lakes growing up on the East Coast. And it was in 1986, and it was a pink spiral, and it was called the Great Pink Spiral of the Great Lakes or something. You can look it up. And my father and I witnessed it, and it was incredible, and we didn't know what it was. And it was massive, and is you know... And it just turned out to be a misfired rocket, but it was out in space. And so it just looked incredible. But this is the sort of thing, you know, you get videos like this. It's a blurry orb that moves and it has a pulsating ring of mist in front of it. And you're like, what is that? And then you find out that it's something absolutely mundane and it's working with something, you know, in the weather because it's, you know, whatever light. And so frustrating because, you know. At some point, we're going to get something where it's inscrutable. You can't you can't shake a stick at it. It'll be the evidence that everybody accepts. Well, you know what? Random guy did call it the other day where he said probably within the next week, we're going to see UFOs being seen over Israel in the Gaza Strip. And what was reported on yesterday on Twitter? was photos of what looked to be UFOs over Israel in the Gaza Strip. Wonder how yeah. he knew that. Wonder how he knew that. I don't know. Mm. Um, I, I have access to those live streams there as well, and I've been checking some of those live streams to see if I could see, you know, UAP over an active site like that. So... I didn't view any myself. I am watching. We do have people that are that have eyes on those skies. Yes, but we do. Yeah, RG's calling it. He's calling them out. That's right, that guy. Tim Senor, thank you for another great UFO report. Uh, no offense to Terry, who did a great job filling in, but we missed you around here. And oh, you know what? It's always good to have you hanging on out with us on Spaced Out Radio. Great job again tonight, my man. Thanks for having me. 
Have fun. Absolutely. And a big thank you to Steve Stockton and Chris Stiles for making this just a wonderful show tonight as we sit, or set sails to say goodnight to each and every one of you. We got Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal rocking in the background with Little Brother is Watching. Bumblefoot is the official music of Spaced Out Radio. Rocking us in and out of every single show. Get your horns up for the guitar god himself. Special thanks to everybody listening in at work, at home, in your cars, wherever you may be. Thank you to everyone in our chat rooms tonight. YouTube, Twitch, LGAP, Facebook, Spreaker, LinkedIn, the Space Travelers Club, and on Twitter at hashtag SpacedOutRadio. Remember, this show is copyright by Spaced Out Radio and SOR Media Ventures Limited. Thank you so much for choosing to share your evening with us, because together, my friends, we own the night. Mr. Bumblefoot, we need a favor. We need you to take us home. Yes, the Wu train has docked for the night. But soon, my friends, we shall ride again. Your seats are always available. Your tickets never expire. And if you want to bring a friend, we got room for them, too. Good night. Plumbing, HVAC, and electrical contractors on Service Titan put up big numbers. How big? In their first two years on Service Titan, contractors typically see a 17% increase in revenue, a 9% increase in average ticket size, and a 10% increase in call booking rates. They also average a 4.7 out of 5 stars on customer review sites. Add it all up and the answer is clear. When solving for profitability, productivity, and growth, Service Titan is an essential part of the equation for contractors like you. Learn more today at servicetitan.com. That's servicetitan.com. Individual results may vary. Hey, is that the new iPhone 15 Pro? Yeah, it's made with titanium and the Pro camera is epic. Just got it at T-Mobile. Nice. Yep, and I got their Go 5G Next plan, so now I have the freedom to upgrade my phone every year. Whoa, I gotta get to T-Mobile. Get our best deals on iPhone 15 Pro at T-Mobile.com. One-year upgrade requires Go 5G Next plan, financing new qualifying device, and upgrading in good condition after six months with half paid off.